Hello, everybody, and welcome to another absolutely jam-packed episode of All In. From the wonderful 101, I am Wonder Eric. And I'm Single Strike Seth. There's just so much to talk about this week. So much news. Pokemon, Super Smash Brothers, ramen. It's going to be okay, Seth. We'll get through this. And I'm going to need you sharp because in this week's top five, we're going to tell our listeners about how the N64 kind of changed everything. Well, that's certainly not all because we're also going to chat with Gabe Durham, the man behind Boss Fight Books. And you know we're still bringing our listeners our weekly indie showcase. This time, we're talking Planet Alpha. Well, it also doesn't help that we've been on island time this week, and we're going to be talking all about our experiences on the Isle of Armor. Well, I know we can handle it, buddy, and I can't wait any longer. It's time to go all in. Seth, well, we have another jam-packed episode for all of our wonderful listeners. We have a lot of stuff to get to today. Let's get to it. But first, how was your week? It's It's been a little crazy um, in terms of news. Oh, yeah. We will certainly get to that. But um, no, yeah, I just really quickly wanted to touch on a few things that have been going on this week. So the first thing, this is, you know, I know this is a video game podcast. I know that this is you know, a Nintendo podcast, but if I can just take just the shortest detour away from the realm of video games to talk about a show that I really like that has been airing on YouTube, and I wonder if you've heard of this. So, I'm a big Star Wars guy, right? Seems fair. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know this about me. I, I love Star Wars. I also love 90s game shows, and uh, <laughs> Star Wars Jedi Temple Challenge is super good. I just wanted to give that that a little tip of the hat to that show. That show is so good. It's like, I mean, it's quite literally just Star Wars Legends of the Hidden Temple. That's just what it is. I mean, I'm sold at that point. I mean, if, if you are like me and, and just that sounds like that sort of kids, you know, game show in, in the world of Star Wars sounds good to you, you just have got to check that out. It's every Friday on the Star Wars Kids YouTube channel, freely available they're like 30 minute long episodes and it's just so good. They've got Ahmed Best there kind of as the host, which it just Oh nice. Yeah, just so cool to see him kind of back into Star Wars for those that don't know. He was the actor that played Jar Jar Binks in The Phantom Menace. Yeah. And received a lot of flack for it. Yes, and the it's just really nice cuz now, you know, 20 years removed, the fans have really sort of welcomed him back into Star Wars with open arms and he's playing this sort of Jedi master character in the show. And I just just really love it. It just has all that like (laughs) nineties cheese, you know, that, that legends of the hidden temple cheese. And it's just a, it's just a really fun, good hearted show. Like one of the things that I really like about it. And again, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this, but the kids that even the ones that lose and don't progress to the next round of challenges, they don't frame it. Like you're a loser. They say, you're just, you know, you're going to go back to the to the Jedi, you know, Academy or whatever and, and have some more training. Just a nice show. Just just a feel-good show. <laughs> and if any of our younger listeners uh, are not familiar with Legends of the Hidden Temple, it was an old 90s game show that you should 
absolutely check out. It was one of the most fun things on television. So good. I I have such a soft spot in my heart for those kind of like nostalgic game shows. And speaking of Star Wars, back in the realm of video games, on my Switch, picked up just yesterday at the time of this recording, uh, Star Wars Episode One Racer which is a nice. Switch port of the kind of classic N64 game. Um, they have done some decent work to this port. They've cleaned it up, you know, visually. It doesn't look amazing. It's not a remake or a remaster by any stretch. But it plays. It still has that really fast, fluid kind of racing gameplay that, that the original had. It uh, looks, you know, pretty clean, although... Again, still very polygonal, still very N64. One area that they don't i don't think they touched it all was the actual audio which is weird that is weird it's interesting yeah and i think that is because and i i would have to actually do some research i i i want to say that the n64 version i don't believe had music during the races i think the actual like episode 1 racer for dreamcast I think that was the one that had music to it. And so they've pulled this and it's it just sounds like tinny like it hasn't been re- the music hasn't been reworked whatsoever. It, like it sounds like it's, you know, 20 years old. Well, there's an outside chance that it could have something to do with like a licensing agreement, like they 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 don't have a new licensing agreement to use new music so they had to use the old stuff or something i don't yeah, know yeah that's certainly possible it's just it is it is strange but you know it's it's fun i if you grew up with that game you know if you if you played that game back in the day on n64 i i could recommend it it's 15 bucks uh on the eShop. I, I could definitely recommend the pickup and you know it's kind of fun to mess around with for a few seconds and you know feel feel like you're back in the day with your N64 again. But yeah, other than that, it's just been a lot of... Uh, we're, we're certainly going to talk all about Isle of Armor. Oh, yeah. You and I both have put so much time into Isle of Armor. Yeah, that's been the main thing. So I will save that for when it is appropriate. Sir, what have you been up to? Well, in addition to Isle of Armor, uh, because of you, I wound up picking up that Clubhouse Games collection. And this past weekend, uh, shout out to... Brad Worley, friend of the show. I got to spend Father's Day with him and his wonderful family, his wife Morgan, his kids Julian and Olivia. Hey, guys. And we wound up getting like a good six, seven hours out of that game collection. Nice. Just going from darts to soccer to fishing to Mancala to just everything. Just changing games every 20 minutes or so. But we very quickly lost, like I said, six or seven hours playing that. And we had an absolute blast by the way they absolutely wiped the floor with me in darts oh wow (laughs) him and his wife both like if you were listening to the game from the next room you'd probably think the bullseye soundbite was glitching out or something wow it was like bullseye 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 like like okay i get it guys i lose (laughs) yeah he split the bullseye into twain (laughs) exactly (laughs) like how do you even do that on a video game (laughs) But, no, we we had so, so much fun with it, and I plan on busting it out quite a few more times. Oh, it's so good. Uh, That was, yeah, that was mucho enjoyable. So thank you very much for the recommendation. Oh, absolutely. It's just, that is such a polished, like, collection. I just, I love it. That's the kind of, that's just an evergreen game. You know what I mean? Like, 
That is that is definitely going to be a Switch mainstay for years to come, I think. It's it's a perfect, perfect party game. And for the price, I mean, you just you can't beat it. Yeah. I will say that was not the only game that I played for the first time this past week. However, because of the Pokemon Presents from last week, I decided to check out the Pokemon Cafe puzzle game that was released this past uh, Tuesday. Yes. Yeah. The 23rd. I am excited to hear this because I have not had a chance to check it out yet. Well, I mean... The, the big thing about the game is the art direction right. and the visual. Like, it is aggressively charming. <laughs> it really is. But I got to play the first 20 levels or so of the game. And if you look at some of the trailers, you might think it's just mindlessly just swirling your finger around the screen. Right. But it's not. They do add a couple wrinkles in there and, you know, some interesting little mechanics again i'm only 20 levels in the game could certainly get much more in depth but you know there is a little bit of strategy involved obviously with it being a pokemon game and with the art direction it's going to be marketed toward younger kids right but i mean i i'll probably wind up going back to it i did have a decent little amount of fun with it i will say it is only playable in handheld mode. Oh, interesting. It is touch screen. You cannot play it on the TV with a controller. It is only playable in handheld mode using the touch screen. I did not know that. And it specifically says that when you boot the game up, it says, you know, this you have to use the touch screen with this and it won't let you progress further until you actually touch the okay button. Wow, that's really interesting. So I almost wonder so the game is available on mobile, isn't it? Yes. Hmm. I almost wonder if it's just, if it, it was like a this the Switch version was just sort of like a hey we took the, we got the mobile version and here it is on Switch. <laughs> Seems like that might be kind of the case. It, very possibly. The only thing, and I haven't seen too much of this yet. I don't know exactly how it's going to be implemented, but it does say the game's free to start, free to free to play, but there are in-app purchases. And again, I haven't seen, I haven't gotten any prompts for purchases yet. Mm. I know that there's a special Pikachu character that will be available, I believe, for the first couple of weeks or so the game is out. But... Interesting. Especially for a game that's marketed at kids, it's it's so easy with microtransactions and with in-app purchases for things like this to... To, to start to turn public, you know, opinion against it because right. loot boxes, surprise mechanics, whatever you want to call it, uh, microtransactions, uh, it's it's a very, very contentious topic. Yeah, I mean, And it's... especially when you're talking about games that are meant specifically for younger audiences and you want to try to implement mechanics like that. It, it's it's got to be done very very carefully, right? And I haven't again. I haven't seen any prompts. I'm not getting constant messages. It's like, hey, just spend two dollars to get this. No, the the game doesn't do that. Thankfully, that's good. And and I'm hoping that moving forward, it is a much more. I, I hope it's a much more background kind of thing, and they're not trying to subtly kind of 
pressure kids into spending $500 on their parents' credit card. <laughs> right. So. I think that's super important. You have to, it's that, that tightrope. You, you can't, obviously they want to make money. It's a business. They want to make money, of course. Yeah. I mean, you create a game. Yeah, that's fine. If people are going to play the game, you, you deserve to make some money off the, you know, the program, the game you create. But you don't want to be sort of predatory about it either. So, yeah. It's nice to hear that they have taken sort of a more elegant tact thus far. Thus far, yes, and I hope that continues. I'm glad to hear it. I'm going to have to check it out. I might actually just download it on my phone. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I have it on my Switch, but um, who knows? I might download it on my phone. I wonder if there's cross-save. That's a good question. I don't know. That would be interesting to check out. No. But that's certainly not the only Pokemon app that they want us to download on their phone coming up. I think it's time for us to get to the news, Seth. Let's do it. Hey, listen. All right, we have to talk about the Pokemon Presents from this past Wednesday. And I've got to say, leading up to like the first few shots of the trailer for Pokemon Unity, there was a lot of footage in there of people playing the Pokemon trading card game. I know. And again, shout out to friend of the show, Brad Worley for last week's Pokemon presents. He called a Pokemon TCG game for the switch. I thought I did see that comment. And I, I totally thought that the, I was like, man, this guy was right. <laughs> when the trailer started, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I, I saw all the Pokemon trading card game stuff. I was like, Oh man, he called it a week early. Oh, it's happening. Yeah. And then the footage starts showing up, and yeah, it's, well, <laughs> not quite what I think a lot of us were thinking. Yeah, not even a little bit. <laughs> Pokemon Unity, for those who aren't familiar with the MOBA genre, MOBA stands for Multiplayer Online Battle Arena. And by far, the two most popular games in the genre are Dota 2. And League of Legends. Right. And absolutely to their credit, they have been able to carve out a large niche for themselves. Oh, League in particular, I think with the exception of maybe Fortnite, is like consistently the biggest, like most streamed game on Twitch. Yes. That being said, MOBAs are not really mass appeal releases. No. You are not going to have the same kind of mass interest and mass appeal as you would, say, with a first-person shooter or a cinematic 3D action-adventure game or an RPG. And the fact that Pokemon teased a big project, I think we were all thinking that it was going to be an existing IP. Right. I mean, I thought there was the possibility of it being a new IP, but I thought that if that were the case, they would have told us. Well, and I mean, like, there was, you know, we, we talked last week on the show, right, about how I think that there was compelling reason to think that it was going to be another entry in the Let's Go series, and I mean, it could have been any number of things, but this was pretty much the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah, and Pokemon TCG. Yeah. You could have made Brad's dreams come true. It honestly would have been really cool to see. I might have actually gotten back into Pokemon for the first time in some 20 years had that been what it is. It would have made so much sense to do that. Yes, absolutely. It would have made so much sense to do that. But now we have hashtag Pokemoba. (laughs) I'm 
I'm going to make it a thing. It's going to be a thing. I'm going to make it a thing. And I get that they're excited about it. I get that they want us to be excited about it. And I hope it's a good game. I really do. I want it to be a good game. But I think that they should have had a little bit more self-awareness. Yeah. Because, again, MOBA's not really mass appeal. And again, with Pokemon being a much more kid-centric franchise... I can't imagine that a lot of the fan base out there is thinking that's what I've always wanted a Pokemon multiplayer online battle arena game. <laughs> right. So in my opinion, Pokemon unity and new Pokemon snap should have absolutely switched positions. I agree. Um, now allow me, if you will, to play devil's advocate here. Okay. I, I want to make it clear. I absolutely agree with you for, you know, not for nothing. This MOBA kind of thing is not my cup of tea whatsoever. I I pretty much could not be less interested in Pokemon Unite, right? <laughs> Just on a personal level, right? Yeah. However, uh, one I think a really important thing to consider here is the involvement with the company Tencent. Yes. This is a collaboration with Tencent, and for those that don't know, Tencent is the largest video game company in the world. They are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, and they own pretty much a piece of just about everything, even like going to people like Activision. And I think they're even working in collaboration with like people like Bungie right now. We're starting to see Tencent sort of work with more and more game developers, even in the West. Well, that makes perfect sense, because when they had the Tencent producer on there to talk, like, he straight up came off like a Yakuza boss. Oh, dude. I, I mean, like, they it's it's intense. They are so intensely rich. It, it's, like, it's absolutely absurd. And, you know, it's worth noting that this live stream, this Pokemon Presents live stream, did air simultaneously in China, um, where also the League of Legends and the sort of MOBA scene is the most popular. Yes. So, in a way, to that audience... This probably is a big project, and Tencent in particular being involved, I mean, this probably is, to that subset of people, a, a massive deal. Do I think that it should have been marketed differently here? Totally. Uh, like you said, I think that Pokemon Snap should have been the big project teased here. You could have even made that its own separate direct in the in the sort of like Eastern market. Um, I think that would have made a lot more sense. I think the messaging is really mixed. But with that being said, I, I do, again, just to kind of, you know, kind of play devil's advocate, I can sort of see where their head was at with this, even if I don't agree with it. I, yeah, I just pictured the Tencent producer, despite the voice actor they had translating for right. him, I, I totally just saw him speaking like some mob boss or something we here at tencent are very happy to be partnering with the pokemon company for this 100 percent legit completely legal game <laughs> right. that's totally out of front <laughs> and i mean you know to, to be fair it's sort of cool that this is going to be a cross-platform kind of thing between mobile and switch again you will they even showed um a commentated round of gameplay yeah. Where some players were on their phone and some players were on Switch. I mean, that's, you know, okay, cool. I could see that. But again, it's like the sort of thing where I'm like, I wish this technology was being implemented with a more interesting game. <laughs> like Pokemon TCG. Well, they clearly think they have something with this. 
They clearly think they have something, even if that something is just an esports market they haven't yet conquered yet. Right. I can understand if they didn't want this to feel like new Pokemon Snap was overshadowing it, mm. which is why they gave it its own presentation. But still, there's more than enough time before both games come out to keep reminding us that they exist. And this thing, I mean, this, by the way, has no release date. They gave no release information at all, so we don't know when it's coming. Yeah, same thing with new Pokemon Snap. It's currently, quote, under construction. Right. But, I mean, you and I, not really big MOBA guys, but I'll check it out when it comes out. We'll watch the story as it develops, but ultimately for this big new project that they were teasing us for the past week with, I, I'm i going to go back to how excited I was to see new Pokemon Snap. <laughs> yeah, it's hard not to feel a little disappointed, right? But I, you know, I will say, too, what's strange to me, even beyond just the messaging of this and, and all that, the just mechanically, I don't really understand, like... The whole thing with these MOBAs, right, and, like, League of Legends and stuff is you sort of, like, you find your hero that you, or your champ, as it were, to, um, that you like to play as, you like their gameplay style, you like kind of building them up and stuff like that. With Pokemon, you're a trainer that's supposed to develop a bond with these Pokemon, and to have these sort of, like, weirdly, like, instanced rounds where your Pokemon is, like capturing other pokemon and evolving within the round it just it all seems so strange it just doesn't seem like it gels really well with the ip i don't know well we'll see when it comes out eventually yeah i mean i'll you know i'll certainly be keeping an eye on it yes please download our completely legit 100 legal game when it comes <laughs> out if you don't we don't want to be responsible for what happens well, there is another uh, elephant or or caparaja in the room. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's uh, one that makes me much more happy. Yes, one that we actually are interested in. So we absolutely have to. You know, the other major piece of news from this week: the arms fighter for Super Smash Brothers Ultimate being revealed. I'm very happy about this. Oh, my girl, the ramen bomber, Min Min. Now, you and I kind of both called this. We thought that she was the favorite. Totally. I mean, there's, what now, 15 characters, something like that, in ARMS, after they added, like, five or six as yes. free post DLC. That sounds right. But of all the characters in the game, she was the one that just felt like she resonated the most with the fan base. And even Sakurai said during the presentation he thought it was kind of between Min Min and Ninjara. And then the arms producer specifically said he wanted Min Min in the game. Right. And Min Min is my main. I, She was the one character that I wanted. So I could not be happier. I am ecstatic that Min Min is in the game. I'm ecstatic that an arms representative is in the game. Some people may not be as excited, but th think about it. For Smash Brothers, you have... A Nintendo IP, a new Nintendo IP, one that kind of struggled a little bit, didn't perform quite as spectacularly as Nintendo would have liked, and could certainly do with a little bit of extra cross-promotion. Oh, yeah. And on top of that, it's already a fighting game. I mean, in terms of, you know, no-brainers to right. pick a character from 
for your iconic crossover party brawler. I mean, ARMS was about as obvious a choice to draw from as maybe any other game on the planet. So that, I mean, this was going to happen. Frankly, I was surprised that there wasn't one in the base roster. I thought for sure there was going to be an ARMS character in the base roster. Same. Well, we got Springman as a an assist trophy, and we got Springman and Ribbon Girl as me costumes. Uh, but it really surprised me when the game came out and there wasn't an ARMS representative as part of the main roster, and Nintendo was finally rectifying that. So... I made a few predictions that we talked about. We didn't broadcast them, but you and I spoke about it. She doesn't play exactly like I thought she would. Right. But I'm still pretty happy with everything I saw. I think they made her a very interesting character. Oh, yeah. They they definitely have. And I like the... Uh, you know, it, it's funny, too, because you know, Min Min is, is my main as well. I, I have always loved Min Min from day one. I love her so much, man. She said... And all the really... It's one of those things where I would have really been happy with anybody. I mean, one of the things that I think cannot be overstated about ARMS is just how great the character designs all are. Up to bottom, it's a fantastic game. If you're listening to this, you haven't played ARMS, honestly, go check it out. It just turned three years old. It's worth playing. It is such a fun game. It really is. And, you know, I think for a lot of fans, it came down to either Min Min or Twintel. Yes. And I love Twintel. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that the thing that really kind of has always always sort of rubbed me the wrong way, the, the notion of Twintel being a smash fighter, was the sort of, you know, Twintel's whole kind of shtick is that she sort of slows down time, right? When an arm is sort of like near her and her, even her like the chilla arm that she's got kind of acts as like a slow down mechanic because it kind of freezes the opponent. That would not have worked super well for smash. So I think that Min Min just sort of by default when you when you kind of compare, you know, Min Min just sort of works perfectly. She doesn't have she represents everything that all of the other arms fighters can do. She has the unique sort of shtick about her where she's got the two different arms. Yep. And and I I just I think she was absolutely perfectly suited for smash. I think she looks super unique and fun to play. Uh, yeah, I, I could not be happier. Yeah, well, just from you talking about Twin Tell, I was just thinking to myself, I was like, yeah, I'd, a kind of sexy character whose whole shtick is about slowing down time. I was like, yeah, I can understand why Smash Brothers may not want to have done that again to their fan base. <laughs> yeah. And she just, I mean, like, she just is so readable, too. Like, the, you know, the the noodle arms and the, the noodle bowl hats. And the, I mean, she just, like... Her design is so brilliant, and they all are, and it's so perfect, and I just, you know, I, I'm thrilled. Long story short. I am thrilled. I cannot wait to get my hands on her next Monday. Uh, I will say, we, we will get into a couple other things about that presentation, but I want to make one quick point. Mm. Min Min is already a spirit in the game. True. She is already a spirit in Smash Brothers. So, Nintendo has confirmed that a character already being a spirit in Smash Brothers does not preclude them from becoming a playable fighter. And that opens some doors. Wow. The Enchante. Enchante and, and a like bunch of others. So. Rayman, yeah, I mean, the, the possibilities so, are literally endless. So, Nintendo has confirmed with Min Min 
that just because a character is already represented with the spirit in Smash Brothers does not preclude them from becoming a DLC fighter. Absolutely. Uh, but that was not the only thing. Min Min was not the only thing that we learned during this presentation. There were a couple of other very interesting things that we learned. First off, really quickly, we're getting just about the entire ARMS soundtrack, which is oh. really cool. It is. It's such a great... That's that's probably the single most underrated thing about the underrated game. That soundtrack is so great. And yeah, oh, it's oh, perfect. Such a good... Oh, man. I mean, so good. Is, it, is it like... It's almost the ultimate, like, get hype arena song. Like, so good. And yeah, like you said, almost the entirety of the soundtrack and like to to Mr. Sakurai's credit too he actually worked with when rearranging the main theme worked with the composer of the original game so that just goes to show how detail oriented he is when he works on this stuff so good but with version 8.0 in addition to Min Min in addition to that amazing soundtrack we are also getting of course some more Mii Fighter costumes yes now this is interesting it is very very interesting now, I will say, one of them is Haihachi Mishima from Tekken, and I'm pretty sure, I'm 95% sure, that he was a Mii Fighter costume from Smash 4. Am I right? I think that's correct, yes. Yeah. But, we do have a couple new ones. Now, as we said a few minutes ago, Mr. Sakurai specifically said, when he was thinking about bringing an ARMS character into Smash Brothers, he was thinking about either Min Min or Ninjara. Well, they put Min Min in, but Mr. Sakurai was like, well, I'm putting Ninjara in too. <laughs> right. So now we have Ninjara as a Mii Fighter costume. So that makes three ARMS characters that we have Mii Fighter costumes for. They gave us two costumes from Splatoon. Yes. One for Callie and one for, I call her, I know it's Marie. I call her Mari. Oh, uh, well, I mean, it makes, you know, it makes the most sense to say Mari. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... The Squid Sisters, Callie and Mari, are getting their own individual costumes. And not only that, but they are for different me characters. I think Callie is a brawler and Mari is the gunner. I think that's right, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And then they had to have one surprise. One big surprise. They've been doing this lately. Yeah. First we had Sans from Undertale, which blew everyone's mind and then they had cuphead from cuphead not only just that these are like they're almost like me fighter costumes plus a little bit like they really yeah. do look like just straight models from the game for all intents and purposes they are yeah and and like in the case of cuphead and sans they even included music tracks from their respective games that's not the case with this one however still an insane crossover that even with all of the insane crossovers already present in smash brothers i didn't think i'd see <laughs> but now in 2020 we can confirm smash brothers cross fallout right specifically the vault boy mascot from fallout who is now a playable me gunner I mean, don't call it Fallout Boy. That's a different thing. Yeah, totally <laughs> different thing. They're going down, down. Yeah, it is more than you've bargained for. Indeed. <laughs> but 
I mean, it's cool. I'm definitely going to get the costume. Oh, yeah. But again, it's so insane. Like, I, I think the only reason that they didn't really include a musical track is because, like, what would they include, really? It's licensed music, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's fair. But yeah, this to me just, like, had my brain buzzing because the only game, the only Fallout game that is available on Switch is Fallout Shelter. That's a good point. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, could this maybe be a little bit of a hint that, I mean, I could totally see Bethesda porting Fallout 3 or New Vegas or both to Switch. Well, I mean, the Switch is such a wonderful port machine. Just the added portability of having some of the best games ever made has been a huge draw for a lot of developers. We talked about it on the last episode. 2K just had a massive game dump oh, yeah. a few weeks ago. So it would not surprise me at all if Bethesda said, you know what? We'll do the same thing. We can't just keep porting Skyrim. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, they've got Skyrim running on the thing. I mean, it stands to reason that the Fallout games would have no issue, especially since Obsidian is sort of out there making Outer Worlds run on Switch, the quality of which is you know debatable, but it's still running on Switch. <laughs> <laughs> it's still running on Twitch. That's and fair. They're, they're sort of eating Bethesda's, Bethesda's lunch a little bit, being like, well, if you're not putting Fallout on Switch, we will. <laughs> so, Basically, yeah. So I, I, think it, I think it would make a lot of sense. I think that would be a really cool little announcement. Hey, Fallout 3, New Vegas, even maybe as a double pack on Switch. I mean, I would buy it. Maybe if we'd had E3 this year, that might have been Bethesda's big reveal. Who knows? The world may never know. Yeah, but the last thing they're going to include with the 8.0 patch, in addition to Min Min, in addition to that fantastic soundtrack, in addition to the awesome new Mii Fighter costumes, we didn't think we'd be getting a new game mode. They've added some new game modes. They uh, added Stage Creator. They added Home Run Contest, thankfully. Yeah. So we thought that was kind of it well, for additional game modes. They, they, so I think they even flat out said that that was going to be it. <laughs> yeah. But now they're adding a rematch function for basically all of the spirits that have a battle associated with them in the game. This is really a rematch cool. function that essentially acts as a score attack mode. So if you're a completionist out there, I'm sorry. <laughs> because there's another 12 or 1300 challenges. Yeah. That you're going to have to conquer. Yeah. And more, presumably, when they add even more spirits. Oh, and you already know that there's going to be a whole other swath of spirits added, arm spirits added. Oh, of from... course. Of course. Yeah. If not just for the DLC characters, but they add spirits whenever there's a notable release on the Switch. Oh, yeah. They've added spirits for Damon X Machina, for Astral Chain, for uh, Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, uh, for a dozen or so games. As they've come out since Smash Brothers has been released. Yeah, I, I love popping on there and just grabbing some of those spirits. They really want people to, man, to get the most out of this game. And they certainly are. So I, I respect them for that. That was something they didn't have to include. No, yeah. But they did. And there's a lot of people out there that are just kind of moaning like, well, there goes another 30 hours of my life. <laughs> I can't, I almost can't think of another game on like on the platform that offers this much bang for your buck. I mean, really. I mean, for as much content as in the game, as much content as they're still going to add to the game, 
regardless of the multiple season passes, it's the game is still absolutely worth every penny a couple times over. One thing that we should stop and talk about because we haven't yet is the stage. Oh yeah. Um, I think it's is it Spring Stadium? It is. It's actually Springman's stage. We're getting Min right. Min as a character, but we're getting Springman's stage. Which I thought was a little interesting. I was sort of expecting to just sort of get that ramen bowl stage, but it would have been hard to make that work in Smash. I think that's why they didn't do it. Because there's no real aside from Green Hill Zone. Right. There's no real bowl-shaped stage like that. And even Green Hill Zone, you could say, doesn't really work too well. Right. So I think they saw that and said, you know what? No, we'll pass. This one does have that interesting mechanic, though, with the jump pads. I thought that was cool. Yes, where you can actually cause damage to an opponent by jumping into them using the jump pad. And that is interesting. That's an interesting little, and you know, just as a little visual gimmick, it's cool. The uh, the actual like flying vending machines will be what drops the items in the stage. Yeah, I thought that was a cute little touch. And there's a couple very small parts of the stage that have ceilings attached to them. So maybe if you're knocked straight up, there's a slight chance you hit that and aren't KO'd. Right. Yeah, it just it looks fun. You know, it looks fun for what it is. And her her final smash is pretty amazing. Uh. Oh yeah. <laughs> you just everybody beats the absolute mess out of you just the entire roster of arms i loved that uh that reveal trailer for her second only i for me personally that <laughs> nothing can top the banjo reveal trailer <laughs> the the min min reveal trailer is probably a close second for me it was so good visually it was really really impressive yes and just as a very quick little note about the reveal trailer they got the voice actor for Captain Falcon yes, specifically for that trailer, which is a big deal because that voice actor had not recorded more lines for Smash Brothers since the original game. How cool is that, man? That's really cool. For those not familiar, uh, the same Japanese voice actor who voices Vegeta in Dragon Ball Z voices Captain Falcon. So it was really, really cool they got him back. And his role in the trailer is so great. It's so great. <laughs> also, really quickly, those are some good-looking amiibo for Joker and the hero. Oh, my. So, yeah. So just a little bit of context about me, folks. Just on a personal level, I'm a little bit of a psycho when it comes to these amiibo. Um, <laughs> from the moment amiibo was released, I told myself, you're going to own every one of those things. And here we are, what's, God, has has it really been? 2014 since the Smash Bros. 4. Oh my goodness. Almost six years later? Holy moly. Yeah, but I do. I own every single Amiibo, even the super rare ones, even the ones that are only in Japan. I... I have them all, and these these new ones. I, you know, there was a little bit of in the amiibo community. There's a little bit of disdain because they had covered all of the base Smash Brothers Ultimate characters, and we were like, "Oh man, like I hope that they're not just going to call it quits there." I really want to see amiibo for these DLC characters, and so it was so nice. It was like a sigh of relief to see Joker and Hero, and the figures are so good looking. Yeah, I just recently picked up the Piranha Plant. Amiibo, and it is just, I mean, even though it's a piranha plant, it's just an impressive, really well-made figure. 
they they have gotten so like highly detailed. I mean, the amiibo figures are just across the board amazing now, and uh, yeah, th- this made me so happy. Coming this fall, finally getting some new amiibo, and it all but confirms that Banjo is getting an amiibo. So, <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. I'll take ten. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know you'll probably take fifty. I just need it to to just cover the walls of my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, we've been talking a lot about Pokemon mobile games between Pokemon Cafe, Pokemon Unity. So, between all that, there was a really interesting report that came out from Bloomberg. So, what was that? Yeah, so Bloomberg is reporting, uh, this came out earlier this week, that Nintendo is sort of taking a step back from its sort of mobile initiative. You know, they, they've released several mobile games. They've released Animal Crossing Pocket Camp, of course, Super Mario Run, uh, Fire Emblem Heroes... Mario, you know, Dr. Mario World. Um, yeah, yeah, several mobile games at this point, and to varying success. Uh, I actually <laughs> really liked Super Mario Run. I had fun with my brief stint with Fire Emblem Heroes, but other than that, I nothing has really stuck with me on a personal level. I've got to say, I downloaded Mario Kart, I downloaded Mario Run, I downloaded Dr. Mario World, and I tried them all, and I just, you know, we love Nintendo, clearly. But they're just, it's just not there for me. It's really not. Yeah. Yeah. So from what it sounds like, and I don't want to get too into the weeds on numbers and like stocks and stuff like that, but uh, it's just when you look at the way that Nintendo's mobile efforts are compared to its competition, it just, it just honestly isn't even close. Um, Their, their most successful mobile game by far is Fire Emblem Heroes. Yeah. To put that into perspective, Fire Emblem Heroes is, you know, has twice as many, uh, just in terms of gross revenue, literally is twice as successful as its second, which is Dragalia Lost. And then, like, you know, up from there, Fortnite Mobile is, like, four times as successful as Fire Emblem Heroes. So they, they've just sort of struggled. I mean, it's doing well, of course, but it's not quite, I don't think, what Nintendo was hoping for in the mobile space. So... Bloomberg is reporting that they're kind of like planning on taking a step back and focusing kind of on Switch, focusing on their own platform. And um, I, I don't know about you, but this kind of made me happy to read. Yeah, I think that's the right move for Nintendo. They they tried. I'll give it to them. They tried to make it work, but it's it's just not their thing. They are very good at creating full-sized, fully formed, fully stuffed games and i think the ethos that you have to have when you're developing games for something like the nintendo switch versus something like a mobile platform is very very different it is a very different beast yes there's still video games at the end of the day but it is a much different kind of template right and nintendo tried to adapt to that template and it just, I, I think it, it almost speaks to how good they are as developers that they couldn't make predatory microtransactions work in stuff like uh, Dr. Mario World and Mario Kart. Right. I, like I said, I respect them for trying. But when it comes to mobile gaming for Nintendo, if it's not <laughs> Game Boy or 3DS, or switch 
I mean, that's that's where they're the kings of. That's why they were the kings of the handheld market for years, not the mobile market. Well, and I think the game that sort of put the final nail in this kind of mobile coffin was Animal Crossing uh, New Horizons. Yeah. Just so a little, an interesting little statistic here is that the the Nintendo Switch Online application, which has some really cool functionality with New Horizons, you can use it to chat in game a lot more effectively. You can access your like custom designs and stuff like that via the Nintendo Switch Online app. They saw after the release of New Horizons a forty five percent uptick in usage of that app. So. I think what we're probably going to see versus traditional games that they've been trying to make work on mobile, I think we're probably going to see more apps that will have functionality, really cool functionality with their games like we see with Animal Crossing. I'd like to see that. I would too because it actually is something, I mean like, I haven't really used the Nintendo Switch Online app for much, I'll be honest, but Mm -hmm. the functionality it has with Animal Crossing is legitimately handy and if it's if I'm joining somebody's island or something like that, and it's not somebody that I, uh, you know, I'm gonna have like a phone conversation with or something, it's nice to be able to just jump into the chat real quick, or even just type up a quick message or or whatever, you know. And uh, the the functionality is just really nice and clean. And I, I would really like to see more integration with that. And I, I think we're gonna see that from Nintendo moving forward. Well, I'm all for it, but. Uh... We don't know anything about those potential games, but there are a couple games we do know about, specifically coming from a little publisher, you may have heard of them, called Electronic Arts. Yeah, just a little indie publisher. Uh, Yeah, not well known. You ought to check them out. Uh, (laughs) They do produce a lot of games, mostly microtransactions, but some games as well. Hey, now, they've backed off of that after the the firestorm of Battlefront (laughs) 2. A little bit, they have. That's, That's a little fair. But last week, we reported that there are seven games coming to the Switch from EA in this next year. Last week, we didn't know what all seven were. This week, we do. Last week, we mentioned that uh, four of the games are going to be Burnout Paradise, FIFA 21, Apex Legends, and Lost in Random. Uh, What were the other three that just got revealed, Seth? Yeah, so this comes by way of Jeff Grubb over at VentureBeat, by the way. Um, Jeff Grubb is a very prolific, or has become a very prolific, uh, Nintendo reporter, leaker. He he just really keeps his finger on the pulse, and I, I think I actually want to reach reach out to him and see if we can't have him as a guest on the show. Really big fan of his work, and so he reports on VentureBeat here that the other three EA games hitting Nintendo Switch in the next year is going to be another EA Originals game from a studio called Velen Studios. Um, so we're not quite sure what that's going to be. A port of Need for Speed Hot Pursuit, which is one of the more popular uh, Need for Speed games. And then Plants vs. Zombies uh, Battle for Neighborville. So that makes sense, I think. I think all of those make sense. I do. And we talked about this in the last episode, but I'd like to see just a straight Plants vs. Zombies. I would too. Yeah, I think they're trying to push that new sort of like shooter. And I actually played the first one and had quite a bit of fun with it. Garden Warfare, I think it was called. Yeah. I actually kind of liked it. So I might check this out on Switch. And also from what I'm hearing, I haven't played it myself yet. But I actually hear that the Burnout Paradise remaster for Switch is actually a very high-quality port. Now, 
they may be charging $50 for it for some reason, but the port itself, from what I understand, is very high quality. So uh, Better high quality for a, what, 10-year-old game? Uh, it's, yeah, something like that, if not older at this point, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, like, you frequently see it on sale on the competitor platforms for, you know, 20 bucks. So, so yeah, but apparently it's a very good port. So that, that kind of gives me hope. <laughs> Frankly, I'm sure we'll see it on sale pretty soon on the Switch platform as well. So that's exactly what I'm sort of banking on. I added it to my wish list. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> now, that being said, I'm a huge fan of the Burnout franchise. Burnout, uh, three takedown, Burnout Revenge. Yeah. I played the code right off the discs of those <laughs> games. I had a blast with them. So, I don't know. Maybe I'll check out Burnout Paradise if I see it on sale. Have you? Did you ever play it back in the day? I did not, no. I didn't play Burnout Paradise. I have never played Burnout Paradise. The only two Burnout games I ever did get around to playing were Burnout 3 Takedown and Burnout Revenge. And again, you know, I uh, I absolutely abused those discs. I think you so, would really, really like Burnout Paradise um, because it still has that very fast-paced kind of like high-fidelity destruction that Burnout is known for. Yeah. But it does so in a really well-realized open world with a great soundtrack and like it actually has some really good online functionality. I, I, I think you would really like it a lot. Cool. I'll add it to my queue. It's not like I don't have anything else to play. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're kind of bored there on, on your Switch. <laughs> I'm kind of worried too because those weren't the only games revealed for the Switch this past week. No, not at all. <laughs> all right. What else do we have, Seth? <laughs> so, yeah, you actually linked me to this. You know, just as a quick aside before we even touch on this news story, the the sort of like <laughs> just hodgepodge of news that is coming out in the absence of E3 is so crazy that this completely flew under my radar. It's like impossible to keep up with it all. Yeah. And so I didn't even know about these games until you linked me to this. And uh, and so this happened, uh, evidently, uh, there was a Day of the Devs, which is actually a annual thing that Double Fine does, yep. uh, showcasing independent games. And evidently they did a June showcase in collaboration with Jeff Keighley's Summer Game Fest. Uh, where they talked about several games that were heading to Switch, several independent games heading to Switch. And um, I'm not going to lie, they look, pretty much all of them look really cool. I'm interested in the vast majority of what I saw. And obviously you and I are big indie guys. Yes. So very, very looking forward to sinking our teeth into quite a few of those. I'll just kind of quickly go through um, what they have here. Um, yeah. So there's a game called Black Book, which yep. looks really interesting. Um, it's definitely some dark subject matter. So um, for the sort of younger audience, maybe this is something to to look out for. And um, this this could be a little intense, but um, sort of a dark RPG based in like Slavic mythology. You play as a young sorceress battling evil and stuff. And it looks like it has sort of a card based battle system. Really striking visual style. Uh, looks really interesting. I definitely that that was the one that really jumped out at me as something I want to keep my eye on. <laughs> this game, this game called Foregone. Okay, <clears throat> this is like literally Dead Cells, like <laughs> to the point where 
like some of the assets even look like they're straight out of Dead Cells. I was actually kind of taken aback at how much it's like Dead Cells. And as a matter of fact, they had one of the developers sort of providing commentary of the gameplay and they directly cited Dead Cells as the inspiration for the game. Well, I mean, that makes sense. And for those listening, Dead Cells is a retro kind of inspired roguelike on the Switch. Yeah, it's sort of like, imagine if something like a, it's a very fast paced sort of, imagine if Castlevania was ramped up to 10 times speed and the levels were all randomly generated. That's essentially what a pretty what good summation, actually. <laughs> That's essentially what Dead Cells is. And Foregone looks super, super similar to that. So, of course, some key distinctions, but I, I definitely got strong Dead Cells vibes. So maybe something, if you're a fan of that game and if that sounds cool to you, might be something to look out for when that comes out. Um, this was interesting. Panzer Paladin. This one looks to be sort of a, again, retro-inspired sort of... It's a, it's a combat platformer. Almost gives you Mega Man vibes a little bit. Yeah, that's a little bit kind of what I got from it. Looking at the trailer, it seems as if, of course, the big gimmick is jumping into these mech suits that all have different... Um, you know, these this power, this Paladin power armor... Um, that all have like different functionality. We saw there was like a pole arm that like granted sort of a pogo shovel knight ducktails kind of pogo ability. <laughs> Looks kind of fun and over the top and goofy. This is a game that I actually backed on Kickstarter, Sea of Stars by Sabotage. That's the developers behind the Messenger. Sea of Stars yeah. looks absolutely amazing. This game is not coming out until 2022. Uh, so it is quite a ways off, but it's a sort of turn-based RPG, very much like a Chrono Trigger-inspired thing. And it just looks absolutely incredible. And I believe they actually, for the music, I believe Yasunori Mitsuda has been brought on to handle the music. And I mean... Oh, no kidding. I didn't see that. Yeah. I mean, it is it is quite literally Chrono Trigger. So yeah, very much looking forward to that. Again, that is a ways away, but, uh, but yeah, I, I could not throw my money at that game fast enough. So much coming, so much to be excited about. Yeah, we've got Sky here, just really quickly. That's a game that has been on mobile, actually, for a little bit. That's from the uh, That Game Company, who, of course, brought you Journey, uh, which is a Game of the Year contender back in 2013. So, And just to clarify, the name of the developer of Journey is literally, quote, <laughs> That Game Company. Yes. End quote. Yes. That's the name of the company. We're not just saying, oh, that that random game. No, their name is That Game Company. No, that, that, the game company's name is indeed That Game Company. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Sky Children of the Light is the name of the game. And uh, that, that looks like it's going to be interesting. Came out on mobile, like I said, a little while ago. But, um, but now it's making its way to Switch. So that'll be kind of cool. The next one here is... This, this game is like so trippy looking. So psychedelic. It's called Spinch. Yeah, I'm really excited for this one. It looks super interesting. And just like psychedelic, just the visuals of it. I mean, it just looks like something right out of a fever dream. And it looks like a really cool kind of like, you almost get like a Super Meat Boy vibe from it. Just like, it looks like it's going to be a really just tight, good feeling platformer. And uh, that's, I'm, I'm there for it. I will say there's a ton to be excited about from this conference. So what we'll do tomorrow, we will link to 
this conference and everything that came out of it. We'll set the link. We'll post stuff to our social media, which, I mean, you guys all follow our social media, right? You follow All In on Facebook. You follow at All In Podcasts on Twitter, right? Well, we will post the links to all of this tomorrow for you guys to go check it out because a lot of really cool stuff is coming out and uh, you guys should definitely be aware of it. Oh, yes. I will say, talking about all these great indie games makes me want to get into our indie showcase, Seth. Last week, I very briefly mentioned that I had recently played through a game called Planet Alpha. And I didn't want to say too much about it because honestly, last week I was still trying to figure out how I felt about the game. Right. Because after I was finished playing it, it I kind of felt weird. And we'll go more into it and I'll kind of explain why I felt that way. But uh, I came to the conclusion that ultimately I really enjoyed the game. It's not a perfect game. There are some flaws, which I'll get into, but it was a really good game and it has done something that has left a mark on me. The game is staying with me and regardless of how good quote unquote a game is if a game can do something to stick with you to resonate with you then it has done something right and i think this game is worth talking about yeah i mean that that is the measure of a piece of art right i mean it is there to get to elicit an emotional response and not everything can do that and i could tell that you wanted to talk about this um this was a game that it was, you know, you had mentioned it last week and stuff and, you know, my ears perked up and I, I had never even heard of the game until you'd mentioned it last week. And you actually wound up gifting me a copy, which I really appreciated. <laughs> You're very welcome. I, I really want to see your reaction once you finish it. I really want to be able to talk to you about it because as much as I want to, as much as I want to, I will not spoil the ending really want to talk about it but i will not spoil the ending and i have dipped my toes um into it just in, in the in you know the couple of days um that that has passed since then and just sort of to get a feel for the game so that we could talk about it here on the indie showcase but i definitely want to sort of give you the floor i, I can i can definitely tell that this thing struck a chord with you it did so what planet alpha is it is a 2d platformer with some stealth and light puzzle solving it is narratively, structurally, mechanically, musically, very minimalist. Yes, I've noticed that. But visually, but visually... Oh, the game looks amazing. The game is incredibly striking. Uh, the, to, to the point where sometimes it almost feels like the game is trying to get out of the way. Mm. of how good it looks. But when you're playing through Planet Alpha, that will be the one thing that you are constantly fully aware of is how good everything looks, how amazing the backgrounds are, how awe-inspiring the set pieces are. Uh, again, in just about every other aspect of it, of the game, it is very minimalist, but visually... <laughs> there's a big contrast there there's nothing minimalist about the way the game looks that's for sure no not at all incredibly detailed incredibly vibrant 
from start to finish. It is just a treat to look at. The the closest corollary, it has this sort of quiet beauty to it that the closest sort of relation, just from a visual perspective, that I could sort of make it right to be of No Man's Sky a little bit. I can kind of see that. Yeah, just with the flora and fauna of just these really inventive designs and colors. And yeah, I mean, this game is very pretty. So in Planet Alpha, you start up the game. And the player character is immediately shown to be at some type of altar Right. Inside of a cave. Right. Where it almost appears like like you have no clue how the character got there. It almost just it's almost as if they just manifested out of thin air. Mm. You're not given anything. Nobody tells you anything. As a matter of fact, there is zero dialogue in the entire game. And all the Planet Alpha is very much the epitome of show don't tell. Mm. Because Everything that you're supposed to infer, everything that's going on, all happens around you as you go through the game. And in many cases, happens to you as you're going through the game. To that end, there's not really a plot in the game. Things happen, of course, but the way the story is told, the way the message comes across is again all shown through the game's actions and ultimately a lot of it is up for interpretation. But you start at this little altar again as if you've just manifested there, as if you've just almost been born there out of thin air and you very slowly, meekly walk out of this cave and the scene changes a couple times. There's a couple opening credits as you walk across this massive landscape with these monolithic uh, things behind you. And then eventually, as you're making your way across this massive desert, your character passes out. And then a moment later, you see them coming to at another altar inside another cave, as if they've been healed, restored. And this is where the game really starts. And from that moment that you wake up healed at this second altar after the first couple of scenes, the screen will not cut away. The entire game is played on one continuous screen left to right for about six hours. Wow. It's all a single environment. There are checkpoints that you can get to and there are chapters within the game, but these chapters are never actually shown. Like, you never see a prompt or a heading or anything that says, now starting chapter three, now starting chapter six. Right, right. No, you just you just keep going. This is a journey that you're on with this player character. Uh, it's It's not done like a video game level. Another big element of the game is even though a lot of the presentation outside of the visuals is very minimalist, it does do a very good job of conveying this kind of surrealist tone. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things you'll see in the game are objectively beautiful, vibrant, and 
lifelike and just full of personality. But throughout the entire game, there is this underlying sense of surreality. And I don't know, just in the back of your mind, you just feel like something weird is going on. And the vibes that I kind of got from the game when I played, it reminded me of three different games. Ironically, all of them are PlayStation 1 games. <laughs> the vibes that I was getting from Planet Alpha as I was going through this huge journey with this character, uh, one of the games that I was getting huge vibes from was Skull Monkeys. Now, Skull Monkeys isn't a super well-known game on the PlayStation 1. Definitely check it out. It was a secret to never, uh, Nevermore? Um, so, the, the Neverhood. 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 Yep. Thank you. Yes, I knew that wasn't right. But this really bizarre claymated style of platformer on the PlayStation 1. Again, strong sense of surreality. Yes. Uh, another game that I kind of got vibes about was Oddworld Abe's Odyssey. Mm. And then the last game that it kind of reminded me of was Heart of Darkness. So the the one out of all of those, the one I'm by far the most familiar with is Abe's Odyssey. Yeah. And I think most of our listeners would, would be the same. But yeah, uh, check out the other three. The other three are really good. But all three are, are very kind of weird, surrealist experiences like stranger in a strange land kind of thing exactly yeah. yeah and this was very much the same vibe that i got from planet alpha while i was playing it cool while i was going through this journey so i mean you'll start you know you'll come out of that cave after you're healed and it'll just the camera will pan out and you'll see this massive landscape behind you of trees and 10 stories tall creatures and you know, things flying past you, uh, this huge set piece of an opening swath of landscape. And, you know, you just, you, you take that initial thing and you just go, you jump and you stealth and you interact and you manipulate time. And that is kind of the main gameplay mechanic outside of jumping is you can interact with a few things in the game. There's a button specifically used for interacting whenever you need to interact. But outside of that, the main actual mechanic in the game is a time manipulation. Now, functionally, the way it works is little more than turning switches on and off or making a platform appear when it's not functionally that's how it works but visually when you're manipulating time you're actually manipulating time when you're using that mechanic you will actually see a time lapse either progression or rewind of the planet you're on and especially when you're outside it is incredible to just watch entire day cycles go through on this planet to wow. watch this, the sun streak across the sky to actually see a point off in the distance that the stars are orbiting around. Interesting. Again, just going with that theme of being incredibly visually stunning. 
Like they just took a simple mechanic, something that again, functionally just turns a switch on or off or adds a platform for you to jump on. And they turn it into this incredibly visually striking presentation piece of the presentation. Now, this is kind of where some of the up for interpretation stuff comes in. Mm. Because as you're going through this journey, eventually this beautiful planet that you're traversing falls under siege from, I mean, the best way to call them is like 50s and 60s style killer robots. Like they really look like they've been right at home in Lost in Space or War of the Worlds or something. I'm here for that. Very, very classic style killer robots. They start laying siege to the entire planet, essentially. And that's where the stealth stuff kind of comes in, is occasionally you'll need to, you know, not die when you're around them. But I've been trying to figure out kind of how to get into this, but I really don't know any other way to say it is keeping with the surrealist kind of theme is every once in a while, it happens about four or five times throughout the game, you'll run into what I'm pretty sure is your own corpse. Really? Yes. Like from where you as the player died previously? I don't know. Interesting. But I'm pretty sure... It's your corpse. It's the player character's corpse. And there's a couple times in the game where you actually need to use said corpse in order to progress. Mm. But that's just one of the things in the game. Again, that's kind of open to interpretation. Because, again, I said I don't want to talk about the ending because I want others to experience it. But I will go ahead and say that the the reason this game ultimately stuck with me is because of the ending. Because of the implications that I took the ending to mean kind of broke my mind a little bit. Wow. When I got to the ending of the game, something happened. And the inference that I thought they were trying to make just kind of made me put the controller down and not just think about the game, but legitimately the meta act of playing video games in general and what that means. Wow. And I know that might sound hyperbolic, but like legitimately the game had that kind of effect on me. That's cool. And a lot of the final parts of the game, a lot of the final set pieces in the final chapters could really be described as Kubrick-esque. Wow. And when you get to the end, again, you may see something different in the ending. Reach out to us on social media. I'd love to talk to you about it. Check out our Facebook. Check out our Twitter. Reach out to us if you play the game, if you beat the game. Let us know what you think of the ending, but from what I took from it, it uh, it it made me feel really weird. You know, and it's interesting too that a game can, I mean, you know, 
you got to keep in mind, like, we've been playing video games for, like, the better part of, like, 30 years. Feels like a lot longer, but yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as gamers, as lifelong gamers, we've seen a lot of stuff in video games and even things that you could compare to something like this. I mean, you, you did earlier, right? Those three games we touched on. But for a game to still be able to elicit a response to sort of, like you said, make you know, kind of make you feel like that that stranger in a strange land to show you things and to make you think about things. I mean, that's that's definitely something special. Now, I will say the ending that I'm talking about is one of two. Oh, there is a second ending. Interesting. Now, there is one set of collectibles in the game. Aside from that, the game is just keep going to the right for six hours, basically. But there is one set of collectibles, and there are four of them. If you are able to collect all four, and I will say with a secondary caveat, I did say that the screen never changes, that it's all just one screen. There are portals, essentially, almost like... You know, I, I hate to compare it to a game like this because it makes the game sound more cartoonish than it is. But the portals that you can find in the levels in Super Meat Boy mm. that take you to, you know, another dimension. Right. There are things like that in Planet Alpha. Warp Zone. <laughs> <laughs> a couple times throughout the game, you will come across kind of a break in space time. And if you go in there, you will come into this incredibly dark, depressing dimension. And if you finish the challenge therein, you will be gifted with one of the collectibles, one of the items. If you're able to find all of the portals and collect all of the items, then you will get a second ending. Now, is it like a second ending or is it like a quote-unquote like true ending? I think it's supposed to be. A true ending. Okay. There is a slight difference to the ending that, in my opinion, makes a universe of difference. Mm. I feel the true ending of the game and the one that stayed with me was the quote-unquote normal ending where you haven't found and collected all of these hidden MacGuffins. I see. And that's honestly how I would recommend someone to play it. If you want to look up a guide and find out how to get them, I mean, that's fine. But I would very honestly beat the game missing at least one of those items. And if you want to go back and then collect the last one and then go back to the end of the game and see what the other ending is, by all means. But I highly encourage people to go for that, again, quote-unquote normal ending. Like I said, I, I played it a couple weeks ago, and... I, I did not know what to feel about it because, again, I knew it affected me, but there are some flaws to the game. And, you know, I didn't want to recommend a game that was, you know, kind of brought down by its flaws. And I will say that in Planet Alpha, they do try to implement a couple physics-based things that I don't really think work very well. There were a couple times where I jumped and I, you know, I did exactly what I was supposed to. I made the jump and it just didn't give it to me. Yeah, that's happened to me already really early in the game. Yeah. 
Yeah. There were a couple times where I got past something, but I'm fairly certain it wasn't the dev intended way to get past that. Ah. But I will say kind of the biggest thing for me was the flow of the game is very constant. Again, because minus those dark dimension spots, the entire game is traversed on a single screen, continuously moving from left to right. But there will be a couple times where something happens to you, where the game just looks so good and it obscures a pit or a danger. Right. And you can be going on for a good half an hour and then just die just out of nowhere. It's like having a, you know, a nice pace going, a nice jog going, and then just running straight into a brick wall. Things like that wouldn't be as pronounced in a game that had more, more of a level and world type structure where levels were, say, a minute or two minutes long. But when it's this constant journey and you just keep going and going and going and going and going and then you just reach something and it just halts you in your tracks for like 10 or 15 minutes. Right. It can feel a lot more jarring in terms of the flow of the game, in terms of the pace of the game. Yeah, it just sort of knackers the, the pacing a little bit. Yeah. So you will encounter a few of those moments. If you die, there's not that much of a penalty. You'll respawn just about five feet away from where you died most of the time. And nothing in the game... There were a couple things that annoyed me momentarily, but there was nothing that truly stopped me for any long length of time. So I would not give the game a perfect score. It's not a perfect game, but it is a journey worth taking. It's it's definitely worth checking out. Again, if you're open-minded to more meta-type messaging, if you're a fan of Stanley Kubrick, if you don't mind a little extra thought in your soup, <laughs> I, I definitely recommend checking the game out. It's Team 17's 100th game, like I mentioned last week. That's so interesting. Yeah. But there is a demo available on the Switch eShop. Oh, okay. So I recommend everybody listening to go download the demo and at least check it out because, obviously, demo's free. Check it out. See what you think of it. I really, really enjoyed it myself. And again, if you beat the game, reach out to us. Let us know what you thought of the ending of the game. Let us know what you thought it meant. Or even what it just meant to you. Yeah. Because if you let it, I think there's a powerful message there in the ending of the game. Yeah. I mean, look, you you got me really excited to sit down and play through it for sure. So I'm looking forward to talking with you about it once I finish the game. So for that, that is our indie showcase for Planet Alpha. Check it out. And if you don't have a Switch to download the demo on, it's also available on Steam, on the Xbox One, and on the PlayStation 4. However you play it, I do recommend checking it out. Once again, Planet Alpha. I think it's a rabbit hole, a planet-sized rabbit hole, worth going down and seeing what's at the bottom. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, you've certainly got me excited to check this out. That sounds very interesting. I'm definitely, you know, looking forward to contemplating my existence uh, for a little while after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely looking forward to getting that text when uh, 
just be planet alpha mind blown emoji mind blown emoji mind blown emoji <laughs> well our guest our special guest this week sort of specializes in introspection sort of specializes in these sort of deep dive introspective look at things and just really quickly before i introduce our special guest this week on the show i did want to just go ahead and throw out a quick disclaimer that for full transparency's sake i am a financial contributor to this person's company i am a frequent uh, kickstarter backer uh, and supporter of the product that this person produces um, that has no bearing on the interview whatsoever it has nothing to do with why I uh, reached out to them to be on the show. I just thought it was a really cool thing that you guys should be aware of. And I thought the uh, our special guest was a really interesting person. So just wanted to throw that out there just for full transparency's sake. Without any further ado, let's get into it. All right, dear listeners, we are very excited this week to welcome our special guest to All In. He is the founder, editor, publisher, and sometimes even author of Boss Fight Books, Mr. Gabe Durham. Yay! yay! Oh, I love starting with a good yay. <laughs> Gotta have a good yay this morning. Wee! Wahoo! <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for joining us uh, yeah thanks for having me guys yeah so just for uh for those that don't know um if you could give us just kind of a quick rundown what is boss fight books so boss fight books publishes short documentary style books about uh individual classic video games so each of our books in the series uh is by a different author who tackles um an individual game uh but the takes on it are quite different from book to book so some of them lean more uh historical um development process others could be like more personal about the author's own relationship with the game through time um some of them get uh, more uh deep dive critical into what the game's up to and some of them are, are kind of hitting all those at once but um it's we've been doing that since uh we kick-started the press in 2013 and published our first book beginning of 2014 so we just got back from the printers and um just put out in the mail our the, the 24th book in the series which is red dead redemption by matt margini wow 24 that's awesome yeah so speaking of Kickstarter, obviously you guys keep going back to Kickstarter, so it's been a positive experience for you, crowdfunding, yeah. sourcing this project. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, our our most recent Kickstarter um, ended, you know, only uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, and um, it was one where I kind of came into it with more modest expectations because um, the the world is so crazy this year, and you know, you just kind of don't know what's going to happen, but. It, it wound up being our, our biggest one yet for whatever reason. Um, I think possibly, you know, I, I probably there, there's a lot of reasons. One is um, the, the the games that we're covering this season are so strong and such uh, have have such a fan base. Um, and then, you know, also, I think maybe people are a little more online and, you know, and, and ready to invest in their own entertainment and and. Uh, uh, you know, like whatever we can do to 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 get through this, and 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 hopefully uh, 
reading some good books, uh, it can be part of that plan. I think that is that is certainly true. I think that is certainly the case. You know, you can you know comfort can be found inside of a good boss fight book. That's for sure. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> That actually brings me to something that I've always been curious about as, you know, as, as a longtime fan. What is that process like? How would you guys choose the subject matter, choose the authors to, to tackle it? Sure. Yeah. So we, most of the time, we try not to be super prescriptive about what games we're going to cover because we think it's more fun when somebody comes to us uh, with a vision most of the time that's, um, you know, we have, we hold open pitch reading periods. And, um, so we just let people, uh, we, we let writers, you know, tell us about what they want to write about. And we wind up kind of picking the books that, um, you know, it's a combination of like that sound the most interesting and have the most to cover, but then also over time, you know, when we think about the series, we're like, Oh, we haven't done something like that yet. We haven't done a take like that, or we haven't done a game like that. And so we're kind of like thinking in, in the, the big, picture in in that way um but then also sometimes we've um come to writers we liked and you know just kind of ask them well what you know what would you want to write about does this interest you and um kind of starting a conversation from there but uh every kickstarter we also do let people um let the 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 backers vote on what game they want to read a book about and so um just like we did this last time and the uh fans of xenogears chose um the original ps1 xenogears and so we're currently like having an open reading period for specifically pitches about a xenogears book so in that case um it's it's it starts with the game and then we go from there interesting interesting so it's it's kind of on a case-by-case basis it sounds like cool yeah yeah and and, and i think you know I, I and part of that for me is um it gives me a chance to not rely too much on myself and my own taste and just like what I think, you know, what games I think are the most important, but rather like if this series is going to, you know, continue to have legs through a bunch more books, uh, it needs to be continually re-energized by uh, other people's cool ideas and not just me and Mike. Um, so yeah. And, and I also think, you know, writing a book is so time-consuming uh it's really hard <laughs> and so so <laughs> to, if you're gonna if you're gonna write a book you should really be writing about something either that you are passionate about or at least you're so interested in that it will you know sustain you through that process definitely what, what was the sort of like creatively what was the impetus to starting boss fight books how did you know that this was something that you wanted to do well i had never done anything in the video game space before um so before all this um I was a writer, like I'd gone through um, an MFA creative writing program, and uh, my first book was coming out on an indie press right around the time that we launched the series. And I was kind of just like looking around for the next thing. I'd actually been like teaching uh, in colleges, like teaching English classes for a while, but it was always oh, like wow. scraping together like part time uh, work. And I was becoming a little bit disenchanted with like my prospects of. Um, getting a good job like in in anything that i consider like a reasonable amount of time so i was like okay well what else you know like what else could i do with my skill set and so i was really kind of hungry for the next project and at the same time i was just um going to uh the glendale public library a lot when i lived in that part of town and i um of, of los angeles and i uh was was just kind of reading widely and checking out a lot of stuff out and um 
one of those uh, things that I got was uh, Jeff Ryan's book, Super Mario, mm. which is a really cool book. And I've, I've got it on my shelf now. But I noticed that that book kind of fit a pattern that I was seeing across basically like all the video game books that I could find, which was it was a really big piece of video game history. Like it spanned decades. It got a lot into like the industry. You know, you could have your favorite Mario games like, uh, it, you know, in this book as an example is just like, you know, say you love like Super Mario Brothers 3. Well, yeah, you're going to get like three good pages on it or something, but then it, the book has to keep moving. <laughs> and so right. that's yeah, so so like that's an awesome one kind of book. But I wasn't seeing the kind of um, criticism that I, I think is have, have always thought is fun to read. Like I love reading music criticism. I love re- re- reading movie criticism. But like, where is that in the book form? And so I just started researching and I found that like online, there were a lot of people already in 2013 doing really exciting games writing. But when I was searching around, you know, I think I literally Googled like 33 and a third of video games and literally nothing came up. And it was just so rare that like I have an idea like that and somebody else either hasn't thought of it or jumped on it. And it just seemed like such a big hole you know both in the like market and then also just in the like things that i think would be cool to see in the world that i started taking it more and more seriously and started having these conversations with people about it uh one of the first conversations with somebody who really got the idea and and got excited was my friend um ken bauman who was um who i knew uh, also from from uh writing the writing scene he like had an idea for like what book he would want to write, which became our first book, Earthbound. Ah, yes. He also uh, had a, a, like an excited idea of like what the visual aesthetic uh, was, and he started like mocking things up like pretty quickly for me in Photoshop. He's like, "What if we did something like this?" And the very first thing he did was like a variation on what became that like first uh, minimalist look of a cover, and it was the. It was like the, the baseball bat, um, the, the Nest baseball bat for Earthbound. And um, I was really excited by that. And so uh, things started moving forward pretty quickly from there. I got to say, what I've seen of all the books has just been incredibly interesting. Again, like you said, uh, kind of different takes, different ways to tell different stories. Uh, so what do you think are some of the most interesting things that, you know, you've kind of encountered when you're learning about these games and you're, you know, being involved in the process of helping edit these books and interacting with the authors? Well, I, I think like, uh, uh, yeah, a couple of things. One is um, when you get into this, you uh, kind of realize just how different change your time and like interviews with creators. And if you go back far enough, you become surprised how little there is uh, like out there about it you know so part of the the work becomes either seeking out um a, a obscure <laughs> lost uh, articles and doing doing a big uh, treasure hunt luckily uh, our other editor mike is uh, really good at that he's um he works as a, as a research librarian in his day job and he's very good with databases very you know like newspaper.com and um the uh, ESBCO and uh, just just all these um, kind of alternate to just regular uh, internet formats. And so every now and then, um, like uh, one of our uh, authors recently discovered, is you can reach out to creators and uh, like uh, artists for a game um, or even um, like producers. And you'll find that 
some of them, nobody's been trying to talk to them. And then, you know, as for the question about like process, I don't, you know, I, I, I think uh, maybe boring answer is uh, it just working on all these books makes me trust the revision process uh, of, of a book, uh, the drafting process just more and more. Um, you know, people talk about game design as iterative. And I think you could use that same word uh, for, for drafting as well, which is just, you know, you just got to keep working on a book over and over again. And, you know, it's it's gonna, there's going to be problems. And, you know, authors often feel weird about uh, delivering a first draft that they know isn't perfect. But it keeps getting better, you know, <laughs> it's just kind of like magic, you know, you just, um, you just keep plugging away at it, you keep giving notes, you know, they, they keep improving things. And then, you know, eventually you get to that point where it's like, okay, it's ready. Have you ever learned something so crazy about a game editing these books that you just stopped when you're editing and just like, there's no way that's true. Let me go talk to the author. <laughs> Let me say, yeah, I mean, well, I had so, I had so many that's crazy moments, particularly when I was working on my first book that I was writing, which is the the Bible Adventures book, because so much stuff about that process is was crazy, and just particularly like learning about the way some of those games came to be, and you know, you have one idea when you're a kid playing a weird unlicensed Bible video game, and then <laughs> to find out that like. You know, like like Super 3D Noah's Ark came from. It started with them getting the license to uh, Wolfenstein 3D because they thought that it was going to be the you know it was going to be for this Hellraiser game that they were making for their non-Christian company, but then that didn't pan out. And they but they still had the license. They're like, man, we really don't want to waste it. For some reason, uh, one comes to mind of um, in, in the Mega Man Three book. There's a there's a really great tangent that the book take this pro baseball G that came out right at the same time in Japan as um either either the original Mega Man or Mega Man Two that they just bought a you know like this is our game we're putting all our weight behind it and it was it just kind of this fun like alternative history of like what Capcom thought was going to be their next big thing. You you mentioned Bible Adventures and that was sort of like. <laughs> That that was you know to to talk about just the the breadth of like topics and games that Boss Fight covers that that Bible Adventures is one of my favorite examples <laughs> of that. It's uh, they go from these sort of you know that they have some of them take really documentarian takes on the subject matter. We have uh you know Derek Yu covering his Spelunky book and talking about a game he actually developed and stuff, and then and then some more personal takes on it. What was that sort of experience like for for your part with with Bible Adventures specifically? I think what made me the idea was just started researching kind of on a whim, like what even were the you because know, I had played a couple of them. Uh, as a kid, what I what I found once I started finding these little snippets of um, interviews with the creators and um, descriptions of the games that uh, I that I'd never played, uh, and, and some of those were the craziest ones of all. It just got me so excited to like unearth this thing that <laughs> that like it just seemed like a story that needed to be told. And I kind of knew the risk, which is that, you know, these are games without a, a true fan base um, or much of one. Right. And so uh, it's much easier to market the, the books uh, that are based in real. You know, we, and we see that now in the new Kickstarter. I'm like, oh, yeah, a lot of people are excited about the Final Fantasy book. Because it's, um, you know, it's not fancy. But it was, yeah, it was just like such a wild story. And I, 
it it, it really like intersect nicely some things that I had already had bouncing around my head about my own Christian upbringing, and specifically like how like these memories of the things like going to Christian bookstores and this weird just like naked commerce and Christianity <laughs> right. itself, which is you know at, at its best practice, it's a pretty like hippie you know like non hierarchical not you know um uh, you know anti anti wealth uh, religion and so like kind of teasing out some of those like contradictions it, it like it, it kind of became this fun uh like parallel uh of of uh, some of the things that i had had grown up around and so I loved getting to kind of dive back into that world again for a little while and just kind of, yeah, it just, just kind of like learn <laughs> how, how, how those uh, kinds of products came to be. And I would imagine that a lot of them uh, like, like the wisdom tree games were um, pandering, you know, or they were, right. or, or, or to be more, to be more generous, they were meeting a market demand as opposed to like the, uh, the, the convictions of the creators right yeah I, I, that totally resonated with me reading the book coming from a very similar upbringing i was like yes this feels this feels true to me for sure in the process in the sort of process of all of this of course you're author of one but but in the in the sort of editing producing process has this ever put you into contact with some interesting people sure i i think it, it's it's always really fun when we get like creator interviews and you know i mean some and some creative people are uh really weird fun people like i think of a like keita takahashi the creator of uh, katamari damacy yes and he's you know he he uh he kind of uh creates uh, an air of mystery around himself and you know he's kind of one of these creators who's you get the sense he's being careful because he doesn't want to give too many secrets away but he also enjoys talking about his work and uh, it has a really interesting uh, outlook and a really interesting design philosophy. You know, it, it's, it's some of it. He's he's one of these guys. And in a way, like that maybe parallels like a Shigeru Miyamoto where they like they seem to trust people more when they're not too into the video game scene, but rather uh, they have all these ideas and then they like put them in a video game. I'm thinking of the way Miyamoto like keeps hiring people who don't care about games very much, but then he like puts them into a games role because he likes them and he thinks they're creative and uh, they wind up, you know, that's, that's how like Aonuma and, um, and, and others, um, you know, kind of came to be some of the like higher ups in Nintendo. So uh, that's a tangent, but yeah, like, (laughs) so, so like Keita was just super interesting in interviews and then, uh, I got to meet him one time at PAX and, uh, like it, it was, he was, he was just like, you think it was really, it was really fun. And then, um, like, I don't know, I get excited when our readership includes, uh, people who I'm a fan of. I think, um, like John Romero, uh, creator of oh, wow. has said some, uh, nice things about the books. And he, um, recently like, uh, backed up, backed us, uh, in the most recent campaign and picked up, uh, copies of all the books and so i had a lot of fun like putting that together uh all the stuff to to ship over to him and That's knowing, awesome. know, knowing that it was heading to his home in ireland and you know hoping that he'd enjoy it um <laughs> yeah here here you go hope you enjoy john romero <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, the 3D Noah's Ark, I hope I got those details right about how they licensed your game. Um, (laughs) When you're working through these books and you're reading about all these amazing things that, you know, it took to put these together, does that ever inspire you to go back and replay them? And if it does, does that kind of change the experience for you while you're playing through them? Yeah. Totally. Um, I, I, I mean, it, it generally makes me like want to go back and, and, and play more games. There's a kind of an effect of like working on a book and it'll like mention something that just makes me think of something. It's like, oh, I really want to really want to go check that out now. And I don't know. It's, it's such a mix, you know, like it, sometimes it like gives me this new appreciation of, of the games. And sometimes, you know, you go back and you realize like, oh, this was so perfect for when it came out and it was so influential and since then, I've played a dozen other games that have done it better because this game existed. And so you can kind of like, ha- you, uh, yeah, you can kind of have like both of those experiences at once. Like, this is still awesome. This is still relevant. And then also like, this has done its job in video game history and it's totally worth talking about. But every now and then you have that experience of like, oh, I think I would prefer to read about this game at this point than actually play it, which is a little sad. But also like, <laughs> that's... That's where like we can come in and kind of like <laughs> kind of like point to those uh, things that the game did well, uh, even as we all kind of like move on, you know, like playing um, uh, like Shovel Knight, the David Craddock's book is in some ways about that, which is like people who grew up on these awesome like 8-bit and 16-bit games, taking all the design lessons they ever learned about platforms and trying to kind of create the perfect like retro style platformer, but that uh, integrates all the design lessons that have, um, you know, come up in the last 25 years since those original games uh, were so popular. I don't do this very often. I need to go start reading stuff. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, I always love, I get excited when somebody tells me that uh, they haven't read a book in a while, but they read one of our books. I was like, yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, you're going to be on Kickstarter. Uh, also, all of your books are available at bossfightbooks.com. That's correct. And we're in the Kindle store and Google Play store. So we have relationships with um, some other other bookstores uh, online. And uh, one day when we're back in the world, uh, <laughs> actually brick and mortar <laughs> bookstores. So, yeah, check us out. Yeah, I mean, the, the digital copy is great and all, but you just got to – you have to see these things in person and that, that nice matte feel to the cover. And, I mean – Yes. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of matte finish too. Yeah, I just – I'm always going to be a sucker for the, the physical stuff. But I cannot let you go without touching on Majora's Mask, probably my favorite game of all time. You are actually, for this season of Boss Fight, returning to the writer's chair. Yes. Tackling Majora's Mask. Are there any details you can give us as to sort of what the experience of writing that book was like? Um, what can we expect with that particular book? Sure. So I'll, I'll say, I'll admit, um, first of all, that I get a little nervous when I, I talk to you who've loved the, the game for so long, because I have come to it relatively recently. I think I, I, I started playing it for the first time uh, about three years ago, and I came to it through just an interest in like I was starting to read um, about the fandom of Majora's Mask and some of the interesting things that people were doing. Original Creepypasta, Ben Drowned, and, and oh, yes, like yes. learning about that. And then also like diving into uh, a bunch of the, like fan theories around the game. And so just seeing like how much outside of the game 
like art and thinking and writing it was producing, I was like, I, I think I just got to check out this game. And so once I started playing it and then simultaneously reading more about it and, and uh, the, oh, the, the, the quick side stories, I actually, um, somebody who had written an article about it, I uh, contacted to see if he might want to write a book about it. Uh, he was unable to um, because of other commitments. And so, but <laughs> I already had this like idea of a Majora's Mask book in my head. And so <laughs> that's what really like got me off uh, on this journey of, of starting to at first just kind of tentatively research it. But then uh, once I started playing it, um, I was getting really excited. And so I just, um, and, and so what this book has kind of turned into is, is uh, it's a, it's a couple of different things. You know, this is definitely one of those um, books that's doing a lot of the different things at once. And so, uh, a lot of it is getting into the history of the game's development um, based on uh, all the interviews I could find with the creators. And there, there's quite a few, um, but uh, kind of corralling those. Um, and and the, by the way, the, uh, the 3DS remake was really great for that because not only are there some interviews from when the game came out, but they kind of like relitigated the whole thing um, right. in time for the re-release. And so there's so much great material about them making the game and then remaking the game. And then I also had this really great long conversation um, in person with Jason Loom, who is the original North American localization for the game. Mm. And so he was, and, and then from, from his localization work, uh, all the other um, like Spanish language and French and German um, were, were created um, like from the English version. And so he wound up being a really like important player late in the game. And not only, um, not only for his own work on it, but he also just got to go to Kyoto and work at Nintendo headquarters with the creators and like talk to them about the game and, uh, I'll get on the same page on, on what they were doing. So even though like they were mostly done with the game itself by the time he was there you know he had that like first person perspective uh that that was really awesome the the, the historical work it's, it's taken me in some really fun other directions i discovered these really charming um web 1.0 campaigns around the game um that you could just tell that like somebody in the in American Nintendo Treehouse was having a ton of fun creating like this alternate world in which uh, there really is the moon heading toward the earth, just like in the Zelda game. And the only way to stop it is for someone identified as the one to save us all by playing Majora's Mask and beating the game before the moon hits <laughs> the earth. And, and but, but like they actually like fleshed out the world building like way more than you would think they would. Uh, and yeah, it's um, so so like telling little stories like that is like uh, was it was a lot of fun. And then um, so uh, and, and then analyzing the game for for a lot of the things that I think it does well. Pr primarily, like the things I'm most excited about. Um, you know, mechanics-wise, it's not my favorite Zelda game. That's what Breath right. of the Wild uh, pretty handily. But as far as like, but I do think it is the best story in any Zelda game, and I Agreed. I really love the storytelling. I love the characters. Uh, I love how uh, the characters change and how you could like really arc out each of them uh, across the, the the three days of the game, and um, it's like approach to like here 
really different than in a normal Zelda game, which is just saving the world. And here you save the world, but you're also more emotional way when you save the world by just helping individual people. And it's this kind of like radical, small scale uh, heroics of um, right. you know helping right. people like. Yeah, so, so many like little so or you know saving a saving a, a girl from these bizarre aliens. Um, that's such a and, yeah, I love that. <laughs> what, I love that sequence. That's maybe my favorite sequence in the whole game. Actually, it's like the music and and just how different it is from the rest of the game. Like it's so cool. There's been such, like fan interaction with the game, and I think also just combined with I have kind of just stored up in my head across the last um, you know seven years or so working on all these books is I have to ask myself a lot of questions about like what how what do I think is a kind of legitimate versus like illegitimate, like way of approaching a game? Like when we write about a game, like what's, what's like reading too much, what's, you know? And so, Mm. and, and I think like the world of fan theories is like a fascinating window into that. So I did get to spend some time, like just looking into a lot of fan interpretations of the game and you know, there's some of them that I think are just right on, like good deep dive analysis. And then there's others that I think are definitely like not literally true and are like kind of missing the mark <laughs> in terms of like what the creators were trying to do, but also are so creative and that come out of like what they're responding to in the games, I think are sort of the same things that I am. They're just sort of expressing their enthusiasm in another way. And so which and so that's just to say like all that is really good when it's positive i think sometimes people can get really militant about their own interpretations of the game and uh a couple of examples that that i get into hard in the book are um there's the five stages of grief theory right and then based on that is that the link is dead theory which is that link died at the beginning of the game the game's actually about like you know he's in um his, you know he he's in his own weird purgatory and this is all kind of for him so yeah, that 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 shows up a lot in the book too, and kind of becomes one of the major threads, which I, I hope is interesting to other people. It was sure interesting to me, uh, but that is the one part of the book that I can see people being like, "Oh, I didn't ex- get into that." <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I cannot wait to read it. It sounds like it's going to be a really nice sort of uh, sort of tome to cover all the different facets of what makes Majora's Mask so awesome. Seth is going to call me after the book comes out. I was like, he completely messed it up. yeah okay i'll I'll, I'll be braced for it no 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 it sounds (laughs) it sounds great i'm gonna i'm just gonna have to what i'm gonna have to do for my part is work on my pitch to email you for my banjo kazooie book so (laughs) interesting i wonder yeah i wonder what they're they're, (laughs) i tend to uh, not give it its due i think uh but but I think there must be something there because this uh, collectathon genre it, it seems to be like popping up more again. Mr. Durham, thank you so much for joining us on All In again. Definitely check out BossFightBooks.com. Check out uh, all of their items on the Kindle Store, on Google Play, on Amazon, on Kickstarter. Check them out on Facebook at BossFightBooks. Check them out on Twitter at BossFightBooks. Once again, Gabe Durham. Yay! Yeah. Thanks so much. So yeah, that was a really cool chat with Gabe. Boss Fight Books. Check it out. It is uh, it is definitely something that I've enjoyed over the years and uh, highly recommend giving Boss Fight Books a look. Yeah, I wasn't, I have to admit, like I wasn't really aware of them until recently. And I don't read too many books, but I would absolutely check a few of those out. 
I'm sort of in the same boat. I, I was never, you know, I used to love reading when I was a kid and then you, you become an adult and it kind of falls off a little bit. But I mean, these boss fight books, the ones that I've read have just been absolutely fascinating. And, um, there, it's just such a, such a good package, just so well done, so well produced and, uh, really cool to, uh, have the opportunity to talk with Gabe. So we do again, thank him for, uh, for, for chatting with us this week. Well, I gotta say just, Talking with Gabe about all this video game history has uh, made me a little nostalgic for the Nintendo of yesteryear. Ah, yes. And Seth, it just so happens that the Nintendo 64 just celebrated its 24th birthday. I think this calls for an all-in top five. Yes. Let's do it. So... Uh, As we just mentioned, June 23rd, 1996, Nintendo's 64-bit console gets released in Japan, and the world was never the same. That sounds hyperbolic, but it really isn't. It's really not, and we're going to prove it to you, because we've been thinking a lot over these past few days about just how much the system is not meant just to us, but to the industry in general. And it turns out, it was pretty darn important. (laughs) So we have gathered the top five ways that the Nintendo 64 changed the landscape of gaming forever. Number five, the Rumble Pack. Ah, the Rumble Pack. Now, I've got to say, especially for a lot of our younger listeners, a lot of what you're going to hear on this top five may not seem like a big deal, mostly because... A lot of this is so widespread now that we just take it for granted. Okay, boomer. Yeah, basically. (laughs) But it all got their start right here on the Nintendo 64, and that includes rumble functionality in controllers. Yeah, imagine, if you will, an existence, a time where your controller did not rumble. I mean, it happens, like, it's so standard on video game controllers now that most people I don't think consciously realize that it happens anymore. It's just part of the immersion of the game. Right. It happened, but it just doesn't consciously register that it's happening in your hands, that it's not happening to the character on the screen. And that was an incredibly insane innovation back when the Nintendo 64 started doing it. They had, these little attachments that would fit into the bottom of your controller. Yes. But they would directly coordinate with the games you were playing to quake the controller when your character got hit or even when you did something as landed jump. And it was one of the greatest things we'd ever seen. Dude, it was like, it was so crazy too. Not even just because of the additional like weight that the rumble pack added to the N64 controller, but like, yes, like after playing with the rumble pack, I mean, you, you almost couldn't go back. Like, I, I remember I actually did not get the rumble pack immediately. It, I, it was it was a little while before I got one of my own, but my friend had it and I, I would play at his house. I'm like, dude, like I'm like I'm living a half life, a cursed life without <laughs> without the rumble pack. <laughs> my entire gaming life is a lie. Exactly. It's rumble free. I can't live like this. This rumble-free existence. But again, now it's standard. Right. 
the DualShock controller has had it since the PlayStation 2. Like, it's been standard in every DualShock controller since the PlayStation 2. I'm pretty sure that uh, the Xbox controllers have all been the same way. Yeah. Again, I can't remember just because it's so, just because it's there. Like, it's so ubiquitous in the in the industry now, you don't even think of it. And it's interesting now because flash forward to present day, and Nintendo is innovating on rumble technology yet again with the HD rumble that is on the Switch. And I think the craziest thing I've seen with the HD rumble is with oh one two Switch, we hardly knew ye. Ah, uh, that's such a great pull. I actually, like, yeah, that marble game in that in 1-2-Switch? Exactly, exactly, exactly what I was about to say. Oh my gosh. In 1-2-Switch, the rumble in the Switch Joy-Cons is so comprehensive that it can mimic specific and differing numbers of marbles inside the controller. There's a game on 1-2-Switch where you have to roll the controller back and forth and guess how many marbles are inside the controller. Such is the mastery of the technology that Nintendo has left upon us. It is the craziest thing. And it all got its start right on the Nintendo 64. We certainly would not be where we are today without that little rumble pack that you snapped onto the back of that N64 controller, that's for sure. And again, it may seem like a small thing just having a little rumble when you're playing a game, but the level of immersion that you get from having a physical stigma, having a physical response to what you're seeing on screen is incredibly powerful. Right. So thank you, Nintendo 64. We are definitely ready to rumble. (laughs) I love it. Well, coming in at number four, in terms of these influential things that the N64 blessed us with, the N64 had a device. This is another modular device that was made available after the launch of the N64 called the Expansion Pack. Now, the N64 had a sort of dock in the front of it that was a space for what is essentially a piece of modular uh, four megabyte, yes, megabyte <laughs> RAM stick. <laughs> and this was a big deal because this increased the N64's console RAM, that's, that's random access memory, sort of processing speed, from doubled it to from four megabytes to eight megabytes incredibly fast incredibly fast lightning speed but (laughs) this i mean this was not only was this required in order to run some of the games including major games like donkey kong 64 majora's mask and perfect dark yep this actually would increase like visual fidelity yep there were certain games that had functionality locked behind the expansion pack yep and, and I mean, like, it's sort of like there's a whole laundry list of games that were improved by it. And I think that the way that you would, and, you know, and that might sound kind of strange, but this is, you know, what, what's the kind of current landscape of gaming right now, right? We're talking about things like PS5 and Xbox Series X and the way that uh, Xbox One and PS4 games are going to be sort of improved as a result of as a result of the extra processing power well that sort of notion made its debut with this little expansion pack on N64 yeah rather than release a new console nintendo took the incredibly weird at the time 
path of just saying, you know what? We're just going to make the N64s better. Right. And it's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation, but imagine like buying a software patch for one of your consoles these days. Even that kind of idea stems from what the expansion pack meant for the Nintendo 64. Because yes, there were some games that required it, but just like you said, uh, there were other games who had performance improvements in a myriad of ways. Whether or not the games actually moved smoother, greater visual fidelity, smoothing out textures, it straight up made the system more powerful and improved the entire gaming experience because of it. And again, this concept has, you know, turned itself into a couple different things over the course of the past 24 years. But a lot of those concepts were shown to be possible because of the expansion pack. Yeah, I talked about Star Wars Episode One Racer earlier in the show. That was a game that if you had the expansion pack, you could access high res mode, which, you know, which which increased the resolution to a staggering 480p. <laughs> we were so spoiled with visual fidelity back in the day, weren't we? Oh, yes. <laughs> we didn't need 4K. We had a 3 by 4 inch TV. Yes. We had static. We were we were so spoiled. And then like, yeah, piggybacking off of that. I mean, this is all stuff that again, like like we we keep saying, this is stuff that seems so commonplace today. But imagine, if you will, a world where you didn't play the game with a stick. I mean, the closest thing there was in the entire landscape of interactive entertainment at all before the N64 debuted with its analog stick was like some weird PC airplane gimmicky joystick. Yeah, like that, like that sort of typical like Atari 2600, you know... Yeah. But but yeah, no, this was a full directional analog stick. Nobody has I, I'm not going to sit here and say that the <laughs> N64 controller was designed for human hands because it wasn't. It's endearing in failures. It it really is. I mean, I I had definitely have a, a huge soft spot for it. I mean, I can't I can't look at this controller without smiling. I'm looking at it right now. And um <laughs> it, it that it's just got this three-pronged controller. And right there, smack dab in the center prong is this is this analog stick. And again, this seems like something that is so commonplace, you just you don't even know how revolutionary that was. I mean, yeah, Sony completely changed the standard design yes. of their controller midway through the PlayStation One's life cycle because of the analog stick. I think a lot of people don't even realize that that, that first stock PS1 controller had no stick on it. Yeah. Yeah, the original PlayStation controllers, uh, we're so used to seeing dual analog sticks right. on PlayStation controllers because it's been the design for, you know, over two decades now. But the reason that that has been the design for over two decades now is because Nintendo added a joystick, a little analog stick to their controller, and Sony was like, oh man, we really should have done that. And then they did. And the the analog stick, by the way, too, on the N64, there's something about it. I I don't know that it's ever been replicated quite the same way, except for, I guess, maybe the GameCube, because it was functionally the same. 
but that analog stick on the N64, there's ju- there's just like a like I struggle to even think of ter- there's like a clickiness to it, like just a just a tactile feeling that I don't know has ever been quite replicated. Well, the Nintendo 64 controller had like a notched yes. eight-way kind of flower yes. inside of the uh, stick hub. So it would, the, the analog stick would actually like kind of hard set to up, down, left, right, and then the four diagonal directions. Really subtly, but in a way that still gave you that tactile feeling. Yes. It just, there's just something about that that just feels so good to me to this day. I mean, like, it just made the, like, the movement in something like Banjo-Kazooie or Mario 64 just, like, just feel so tactile. I don't know. And I will say that, you know, so happy that we have analog sticks in games. And thank you, Nintendo for innovating that on the Nintendo 64. Yes. But if we're being completely honest, hey, Seth, go find me a Nintendo 64 controller that the analog stick still works on. (laughs) Uh, That's fair. I mean, we can probably single-handedly blame Mario Party for that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, innovation does not mean it is aged well, but Nintendo was certainly first to the playground with that and all of these others. Now, there's a lot of people that probably aren't even aware of our number two. I actually, like, we when we were sitting down making this list, I, we had to, like, actually do some research to confirm it, and I was sort of mind-blown when you told me this. Yeah. So, for our number two innovation made by the Nintendo 64, online gaming... I, I mean, come on, right? If you're anything like me, when you first told me that, my my thought was like, there's no way that predates the Dreamcast and SegaNet. So, for our lovely, presumably mostly Western listeners, there was an addition to the Nintendo 64 that was released solely in Japan. It was in development for a long, long time, and it is called the 64 Disk Drive, or the 64DD. It was released December 1st, 1999. And when you think about that, that was either the dumbest move in history or the most (laughs) boss move in history. (laughs) Because December 1st, 1999, the entire world was less than a month from being completely crippled by the Y2K bug. Yes. Oh, man. And Nintendo straight up releases a console attachment whose sole purpose is to use this newfangled thing called the internet. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> We're fairly certain the world's not going to end in a month. We'll go ahead and release this. But sure enough, they released an attachment that went on the bottom of the Nintendo 64 called the 64DD. And a couple months later they released a disc that allowed you to use a straight-up internet browser on your Nintendo 64. So this was February of 2000, which means that it predates SegaNet and the Dreamcast's online functionality by about eight months. That's wild to me. Nintendo had a lot of plans for the 64DD. They really did. They had a lot of aspirations. Or the 64DD. They wanted people to be able to play together 
online in games like Mario Party and Smash Brothers. They wanted to they wanted people to be able to download demos of games. There was a lot of things that Nintendo wanted to do that wound up being implemented eventually. However, for a short time, they were able to make one thing work. There was one piece of player-to-player online connectivity that Nintendo was able to make work. On the 64DD, there was a four-part game, kind of a follow-up to Mario Paint, called Mario Artist. And using the player-to-player online functionality offered by the 64DD, players could actually share creations they made in Mario Artist with each other using dial-up internet. How crazy is that, man? This is 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Nintendo had many more aspirations for the 64DD, and the server that allowed for the internet browser and allowed for the online gaming was unfortunately shut down a little less than a year and a half after it booted up. Ah. However, for a very short time, the Nintendo 64 actually had some very, very rudimentary online capabilities. It was barely a seed of what would eventually become a widespread forest, but that seed was planted on the Nintendo 64. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we need to tell you why online console gaming is now a big deal. <laughs> I mean, again, we, we said at the beginning, a lot of the stuff, or just about or everything on this list is something that the rest of the industry essentially took and ran with. Right. Rumble functionality. Entire industry was like, yeah, we'll take that. Thank you. Expansion pack and being able to increase the capability of your consoles after they've launched. The entire industry, yes, we'd like that too, please. Analog sticks. Sony straight up said, you know what? We'll take two. I'll have what they're having. We'll put one on both sides of the controller. (laughs) And with online connectivity, with online gaming, with player-to-player interactions, that informs the vast majority of many players' uh, interactions when they're playing games. And all of that can be traced back to the Nintendo 64. But it's crazy as crazy as it is to think that online gaming technically started on the Nintendo 64. Yes, yeah, so the Nintendo 64 for our number 1 here. I mean, this this thing really allowed developers to realize what games could be with things like I mean, I mean with things like 3D polygonal graphics with these large worlds that were able to finally be realized in a 3D space, the way this informed game design. I mean, this stuff left the landscape of game development and the way we play games and the way we love games forever changed. And I mean, that goes to, uh, I mean, I'm sure we could sit here and talk about many of the games that were, all these franchises that were completely changed via their N64 entries. Well, for a lot of our younger listeners, it is kind of hard to describe. But in the mid to late 90s, the industry was very much having some growing pains. 
The 16-bit era had come and gone, and the technology was improving. And the industry as a whole was practically sprinting toward full 3D conversion. Right. But a lot of developers, it was, it was uncharted territory. It was completely uncharted territory. A lot of developers didn't know how to make it work. A lot of developers weren't even sure it would work. Right. And there were a lot of franchises that tried to go 3D that wound up failing because of it. And there was a lot of trepidation in the industry. Is our inability to convert to 3D, is that going to cause another industry crash? Right, that's a whole other thing, yeah. And in June 23rd, 1996... Nintendo pops its collar, <laughs> walks in the room, and says, this is how we're going to do 3D games. And they launch the Nintendo 64 with the frankly transcendent Super Mario Brothers 64. And honestly, the gaming landscape has never been the same. I mean, I, I, it's so hard, and again, we... I know we sound like a couple of like old fogies here, but I mean, if you could just imagine what it was like to, I mean, going back to the way they designed those original Mario Brothers games on grid paper, you know what I mean? Like, and then all of a sudden the N64 comes out and not only is Mario not 2D, not only is Mario not flat moving from left to right, but you come out of that warp pipe and you look at that landscape and the green hills and the blue skies and Peach's castle in the distance and, and voice acting like what? <laughs> yeah. Charles Martinet's very first performance as Mario. And, and I mean, like, it's just like the possibilities seem endless being able to walk around in that 3d space. I mean, that, that just, I don't know about you, but I spent forever just like running around before I ever even yep. crossed that bridge. Oh, yeah. With Mario 64, Nintendo was able to not just create 3D assets and a 3D world, a fully 3D world, but they were able to create one that was fun to control your character in. Yes. And they found a way around the camera problem that had been plaguing so many developers in the 90s when it came to 3D games. Just everything about the game wound up becoming effectively a template. And now, don't get me wrong, there were some really good fully 3D adventure games on the PlayStation 1. You had Spyro the Dragon, fantastic fully 3D adventure game on the PlayStation 1. Oh, yeah. Medieval, fantastic fully 3D adventure game on the PlayStation 1, both of which received really, really cool remasters in the past couple of years, which you should definitely check out, especially... Spyro's Reignited Trilogy. But Seth, they have one other really interesting thing in common. Both Medieval and Spyro the Dragon released almost exactly two years after Mario 64. Had to lay that groundwork. Two years, by the way, is a pretty standard development, development cycle for a major release. Exactly. Especially in the late 90s. Exactly. So, I mean, it quite literally was like, oh... Oh, oh, these guys, these guys figured it out. 
<laughs> I mean, there were other truly great 3D platformers on the Nintendo 64. Uh, Seth, I'm sure you can think of one. Oh, I don't know. The I, I'm scratching my head. I'm struggling to think of of when the 3D platformer was truly perfected on the system, but. I'm going to call a, a barren bird friend and have him get in touch with you and we'll, we'll talk again later. <laughs> I'll just, I'll be over here in my like pile of collectibles and plushies and shirts. <laughs> and Yeah. <laughs> but again, what we're saying may sound hyperbolic, but honestly, Mario 64 and the power of the Nintendo 64 was the template for that full 3d conversion the industry was sprinting toward any game any game produced now that has 3d rendered characters navigating a three-dimensional environment with interactable assets has its roots in mario 64 yes mario 64 without exaggeration laid the groundwork and became the template for the modern age of gaming. Not to say that somebody wouldn't have done it right, that somebody wouldn't have gotten it eventually, but just like with the rumble functionality, just like with the online functionality, just like with the analog sticks and the expansion pack, Nintendo got there first, and they were the one who showed the industry the way. Yes, Nintendo will always innovate. They will always be in the business of changing and improving gaming for everybody. Yes, Seth and I are unabashed Nintendo fanboys. But honestly... You're listening to our Nintendo podcast, I mean... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're yeah we're, we're, we're a little biased in this. We get it. But tell us we're wrong. There, there, There is objective truth there. And, I mean, anybody... Uh, I don't think that there is a single industry veteran developer that would not agree with everything we just said about super mario 64 so nintendo 64 happy birthday the fun machine cannot wait to celebrate your silver anniversary next year <laughs> hey seth what? what we just finished the nintendo 64 top five you you know what that means you know what that means that means We've unlocked the secret number zero. <laughs> a secret bonus level? The hidden double secret super turbo number zero. Seth, for your number zero, what is your fondest memory of the Nintendo 64? Oh my goodness. Oh. It's so tempting. And, and I, I think everybody's probably just like, ah, he's just going to be like Banjo-Kazooie. Or, or, you know, Zelda, Ocarina of Time, or something like that. But I... I really, even though, this is going to sound so stupid, <laughs> even though I know that the game, <laughs> I'm, I, uh, I'm just like, I'm feeling the comments and I'm just feeling the wave of hatred hitting me already. I lived, so, okay, so backing up a little bit, I lived on a cul-de-sac in the late 90s the height of the Nintendo 64, right? And we would, you know, the the kind of local friends, would, we would all get together. We all had N64s. We'd all get together at each other's houses. And, and we'd play the usual suspects, right? We'd play the, you know, the Pokemon stadiums, the Golden Eyes and stuff like that. But I kid you not, 
and maybe we were just naive children. Don't say it. <laughs> but the game that we had the most fun with after school, and this would, be, without fail, be the first thing that would load up after after school, after homework was done, run Don't over to the it. house, and boot up Superman 64. <laughs> I am not joking. I am not joking. I have a special place in my heart for what is highly considered to be one of the worst games ever made. <laughs> I have a certain nostalgia for it. I, I thought, like, no way he's going to say it. There's no way that's what he's talking about. <laughs> and I just, it was such a, when you, when you, you know, mentioned that, it was such an off the wall, oddball kind of nostalgic memory. I, I felt like I just had to shout it out. I'm sorry. I'm actually going with a moment or moments that predate the Western launch of the Nintendo 64. Mm. Because my favorite memory of the console came because I was a subscriber to Nintendo Power. Oh, heck yes, you were. Just like many other young kids at the time, I had my... My Nintendo Power magazine coming into me every month, telling me about all the wonders of Ken Griffey baseball and Earthworm Jim. <laughs> and we were we were blissfully unaware that we were just being marketed to. But in the months leading up to the release of the Ultra 64 oh, yeah. and the Nintendo 64, Nintendo sent out five-minute promo VHS tapes. Oh my god. To those Nintendo Power subscribers. Dude. And I remember seeing the first one when it came out of the mailbox, this VHS tape sitting in my mailbox that had some weird polygonal Mario looking character on the front, some weird rendered Yoshi. And I was like, what is this? And I run inside and I put my little VHS tape into our little VCR. <sighs> And I see a little five-minute promo video of the upcoming Ultra 64. Dude. I, I see the, the trailer for Super Mario 64 and Yoshi's Story, the teaser for Ocarina of Time. And I, I absolutely wore that tape out. I couldn't imagine what I was looking at. I had my Super Nintendo. I had my Mario World. I had all my wonderful 2D games. And here it was on this VHS tape, this insane 3D landscape. This Peach's Castle, this underwater cavern, this Babomb battlefield. And I just, it I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And I absolutely wore that VHS tape out. And then they changed the name to the Nintendo 64 and sent another tape out just a couple months before the launch that showed off Diddy Kong Racing. Oh. You you have just unlocked a part of my brain. I have not thought about that in years. I wish I had those tapes somewhere. Me too. I wish I had been able to keep keep a hold of those because just constantly watching those tapes, I probably I probably watched them both fifty times a piece, like no joke. <sighs> but just the anticipation of the release of a machine that could do that. Of games that could look like that, it uh, it it very much informed my nineties. 
in my early teenage years. That was that was the whole that was the whole conjecture, right? When Mario sixty four came out, uh, it looks like it looks like Toy Story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was like it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I don't know if I, I don't know if my jaw was actually attached to my mouth at any point. Oh my even God. on the third, you know, even on the thirtieth view of those tapes. So that's honestly probably my fondest moment of the Nintendo 64 is just rewatching those things on constant loop, waiting for the chance to have it in my hands myself. That's so awesome, man. I completely forgot about those. Sorry. I'm picking, I'm picking up gray matter off the floor around me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Seth, we've been nostalgic for quite a while. That was a fantastic conversation we had with Gabe. That was a fantastic trip down the n64 memory lane now it's time for us to talk about much more recent happenings and i've been waiting for this for a while yes let's get into it let's talk about the isle of armor the pokemon sword and shield expansion pass recently released the very first expansion in the history of the pokemon franchise the isle of armor and seth and i went through the entire darn thing that's that is correct and i loved every minute of it i did too i was so impressed by this but just a little background folks when pokemon first came out back in the late 90s back in 1996 1998 1996 for eastern audiences 1998 i believe for western audiences yes what happened for the first four generations is we would get two games two sister games And then eventually, a year, year and a half later, we would get a third, somewhat definitive game in that generation. So for Red and Blue, we wound up getting Yellow. For the next generation, we got Gold and Silver, and then Crystal. For Generation 3, Ruby and Sapphire, then Emerald for Generation 4, Diamond and Pearl, and then ultimately Platinum. And after that fourth generation... I think what Pokemon started to see was a lot of people weren't picking up one of the sister games when they were releasing. A lot of people were starting to wait for that third game. Yeah, they're just like, hey, why not wait a year or whatever and just have the complete experience, right? Because Pokemon is not exactly a game that you're okay just putting six hours into. (laughs) Right. Pokemon is a time sink. Oh, yes. It really is. It's a commitment. And you can't do that with a game and then have another one come out a year and a half later and tell yourself you're going to do it all over again. And I'll admit, when it came to Generation 4, I didn't pick up Diamond or Pearl because I was waiting for Platinum. Right. So after that, Nintendo started to change up how they were doing things. With Gen 5, they released Black and White, but instead of releasing quote-unquote Gray... They wound up releasing Black 2 and White 2. But then for Generation 6 and Generation 7, nothing. When Pokemon moved to the 3DS, we got X and Y, and that was it. We got Sun and Moon. They did do Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. But for the first time that Pokemon is on a console, they knew that moving forward, they were going to have to change things up a little bit. But now here, instead of a third definitive version of the game, now here, instead of a Black 2 and White 2 or an Ultra Sun and an Ultra Moon, they have now opted to instead 
add on to the games that we have. So for Sword and Shield, they released the expansion pass. And that, and they specifically mentioned this during the Nintendo Directs that they were talking about this, was this was their new approach to that old style of game releases. Right. So we're not getting, you know, a Pokemon crown or a Pokemon armor. We are getting these expansion passes. Pokemon gun. <laughs> Pokemon, yes. <laughs> Rocket launcher. Yes. I'm down. <laughs> and now that kind of the history of how we got to this point is out of the way, I've got to say, I think we might be looking at the future. I completely agree. Because Sword and Shield, for those who've played it already, despite being on a far more powerful piece of hardware than the Pokemon franchise has ever been on, the game was still structured very much the same way. Still very linear in terms of the progression and in terms of the environments. Now, we did have the wild area, which has been a blast. This big open area where you could run around and catch all types of Pokemon. There were little different areas, but it was kind of treated like a safari zone. Yeah, it just sort of felt like, you know, it was big and wide and open, but there wasn't a whole lot to explore per se. And I mean, like... You know, a lot of the uh, a, a lot of credit has to be given too to the game's removal of random encounters. Um, yes, seeing the actual Pokemon in the overworld. I mean, the the wild area was a really nice kind of step in the direction that people have always wanted Pokemon to take. But it's still, like you said, the lion's share of the game was still very much in that kind of more rigid, structured pace that Pokemon has always taken. Yeah, the wild area was basically treated like a novelty within the game. Right. Like, oh, isn't this open 3D area cool? And it was, and it was a lot of fun to explore, and the game is still very, very good. However, with the Isle of Armor, the entire area is a fully explorable 3D open world. Interconnected with a ton of story to take on. And I just, you know, I I don't know about you, but I spent so much time, like, I found myself, and and this was such a cool feeling to get from Pokemon, you know, I think back to the interview that we had with Greg Labanov back in episode one. Exactly, exactly. And this is sort of what he was talking about, right? Where it's like, you get lost in just exploring, hey, there's that cave over there, I wonder what's in there, and... You know, there's this sort of like little tucked away hidden lagoon. I wonder what I can find over there. And uh, I mean, yeah, he was talking about how he would take or how he would undertake developing a Pokemon game. And a lot of what he said is here in the Isle of Armor. Yes. I had fully explored the island before I even started the real narrative of the story. Right. In order to start the narrative of the Isle of Armor, you have to make your way. It's a short walk from the station where you uh from where you appear where you first get to the isle of armor it's a short walk to the dojo and then you begin your little quest i just said you know what i'm gonna go have some fun and a few hours later i had explored 
most, not all, but most of what the island had to offer. There was a mountain area. There was a ton of open water. There was a desert area. There's three separate caves. Yes. There's wetlands. There's beach area. There's a forest area. There is a lot to sink your teeth into on this map. And again, all of it is fully explorable 3D open world. And it's like you've got these these varied biomes that all exist within this one island. And it's like well designed in the way that these areas are connected and they yep. feel separate but still like part of one larger whole. It's it's really impressive the way this island is designed. And I mean, obviously we'll get a little bit more into the nuts and bolts of what you can expect, but just broadly speaking, I mean, it's pretty obvious that we are looking at the future of what Pokemon games are going to look like. Oh yeah. I mean, you're just, you're, I'm just, I'm already ready to play an entire game like this. Exactly. The map layout, the structure, the freedom. I mean, it's, it's, it was just everything. I mean, that's it. It was just everything. And that, I mean, it just, it feels almost like, it almost feels like an experiment. It almost feels like he's like, hey, you know what? This is what the fans have wanted Pokemon to be for a long time. What? Let, let's just try it. Let's see what we can do. And I, I mean, it just, they completely knocked it out of the park. And like, I, don't get me wrong. I was excited for this DLC. I was excited for more Pokemon Sword and Shield. I, I really enjoyed the base game. But after actually playing it and being as impressed as I am with it, I am now like salivating for more for Crown Tundra. I know, right? <laughs> but yes, if you're if you own Sword and Shield and for whatever reason have not dipped in to purchase the expansion pass, absolutely do it. Oh, absolutely yeah. do it. I I wholeheartedly recommend it. And I mean, like, I I don't want to spoil things because I think that there are a few fun little surprises. Oh, absolutely. And we're not going to spoil anything. Absolutely not. We can tell you that there are many new Pokemon to catch. Oh, yes. Many new Pokemon. Many old favorites. Uh, And we will say that some Alolan Pokemon do show up. Some very specific Alolan Pokemon are made available. Correct. That got me very excited. Correct. And they... Uh, I I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to talk about the one completely brand new Pokemon that has been added in the form of Cubfu, who is sort of the poster child for this DLC. Yeah, Cubfu is essentially the focus of the entire expansion story arc. And you eventually become the steward of this fighting type Pokemon from this dojo and you essentially go with him and help him complete his training. And it is, in typical Pokemon fashion, a very endearing, almost annoyingly cute, you know, affair. But it is still ultimately really enjoyable. Well, and I also, I don't know if you took away the same thing I did with this, but I really felt that the quality of the cutscenes in Isle of Armor... 
I, I mean, I think back to the cutscene where Cub Fu is first introduced. The animation quality, I, I mean, to me, was noticeably improved over the vanilla game. Yeah. I mean, the amount of personality that these cutscenes have in this DLC. I mean, this really feels like like a step up. Yes. Cub Fu does get the ability to evolve. Yes. And that's one of my favorite Pokemon now. It, yeah. The, he's the headliner of my party right now. Uh, same. It, it was one of those things where it just immediately found its way onto my... I, I ended up completely restructuring my team around that Pokemon. Yep. I, I mean, I absolutely loved it. Now, a couple things we want to tell you. If you're going to adventure through the Isle of Armor, there are some new mechanics that they have added. And thank you. One of the biggest additions to the Isle of Armor is the ability to unlock Gigantamax forms in your Pokemon. This is so cool. Yeah. So instead of waiting for that Gigantamax raid battle and hoping you're able to catch that Pokemon on the Isle of Armor, you can do something. Again, we don't want to spoil it but you can do something to unlock Gigantamax forms in your Gigantamax-capable Pokemon, which, by the way, now include the Generation 8 starters. They So, yeah, and again, we're not going to spoil it. This is something that you definitely need to see for yourself, but this is such a great quality-of-life improvement for this game. Yes. Because... As you alluded to before, if you wanted a Gigantamax version of your favorite Pokemon, you had to wait for them to appear in a Max Raid battle. Maybe you missed it. Like, maybe you just straight up missed the event when they were popping up, you know? Or or maybe you never saw it or, or whatever. And now, and to that end, you would also have to, like, catch it and, like, hope that it was, you know, the, the kind that you wanted and stuff like that. And, I, I mean, now you can take your favorite Pokemon... And unlock that capability if it is eligible. So cool. And I like it because it means that I can raise a Gigantamax Pokemon from a low level. Right. Because I've had Pokemon, I've caught G-Max forms of Pokemon, and I compare them to their non-G-Max forms that I've had since like level 5 or level 10. And obviously, the ones that I've had since level 5 or level 10 are noticeably higher in, in their stats. And, and one thing that I want to say, too, and again, being very careful not to spoil anything, but I appreciate that the process to doing this is not something that is, it isn't hard, but it's not easy either. You do have to put in work. Yes, it won't be just something where you can just drop $100,000, right. you know, dollars, and you can have GMAX forms on every single one of your Pokemon. No. It will take some work. It is not a quick process. And I think that makes it feel all the more rewarding, personally. Yes. And it is also, very importantly, not painfully slow. Right. It will take you some time, but it won't be something to where you can only get one once a month or something. In terms of the actual length of the DLC, I think it's one of those things, again, it's... It, it, you you get what you give. I think with this DLC, the the more you put into it, the more you're going to take out of it. Uh, you could probably, if you were that type of gamer, you could probably rush through the game's core story fairly fast. Probably, yeah. But again, 
the focus of this was so clearly on exploration. I, I, you would really be doing yourself a disservice to not just take in every nook and cranny of this well-designed island. Yeah, and the game's narrative even gives you... It doesn't go out of its way to tell you to go do it, but it gives you a a perfect opportunity to go do this because there is one point where, like I said, you do have to help Cub Fu on his training. Right. And part of that is getting him up a few levels. And when I say a few levels, I mean the game practically tells you go do a lot of stuff. The game literally tells you. <laughs> like they even they go as far as to tell you a recommended level before progressing yes. with Cub Fu. Yeah. And based on the level you get him at and the recommended level that they have for his special training. Yeah, the game basically tells you, you know what, go enjoy the island, go do a bunch of stuff, come back in maybe a few days. Right. Well, and this is also good for players who are coming into the game fresh, who maybe will access the Isle, because if I'm not mistaken, I think the Isle of Armor is actually accessible as soon as the wild area is. Yes. Um, so for some new players, I mean, they may actually, in their first playthrough, venture off there really early on and they may actually take cub Fu with them throughout their main journey i could absolutely see that so that that could totally be the way somebody plays the game and i think that'd be a really interesting way of playing the game but i would for you and i we've we've beaten the main story of the game months ago so oh, yeah so i mean but it was still and i will say to tip my hat and again speaking in very vague terms they this game, um, this this expansion rather, is aware of players like you and I. Yes. They give us things to do that still appeal to us. It, it does a really good job of appealing to people who have spent hundreds of hours with the game or players who are picking it up for the first time. I will say, if you have spent hundreds of hours in the game, I hope you have been hoarding those watts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the watts, if you're not familiar are a secondary form of currency introduced in Pokemon Sword and Shield. You can get them for defeating kind of souped-up Pokemon in the overworld. Most people will be getting them from observing and interacting with Pokemon dens in the wild area and now in the Isle of Armor. Again, I hope you've been hoarding them. Yes. There's not too, too much to do with them in the main game. So they decided... To use him in the Isle of Armor. You gonna learn today. Yeah. <laughs> in the dojo, that serves as basically your base of operations. Right. For, for your time in the Isle of Armor. You can upgrade the capabilities of that dojo using your watts. And if you think, you're like, well, I've got enough to probably max it out right now. You're probably wrong. You're probably wrong. <laughs> I will tell you. Right now, I'm not even sure if this is the final tier. But in order to max out the, the capabilities and to get to the final tier of the dojo, you will need at least 3.3 million. Oh. Yes, I said million. So again, I hope you've been hoarding. Now... A lot of the ones that you're going to want to get because you are absolutely going to want to get a lot of these upgrades. Because a lot of these upgrades mean 
potential permanent boosts for your Pokemon. Correct. And you'll see what I mean. Correct. Yeah. So you will want to get a lot of these upgrades. But if you're trying for that 100%, you better start observing and interacting with some Pokemon dens. Yeah. And there, there's also, just to, to the end of uh, exploration, there is a side quest, shall we say? <laughs> I'm Burgundy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, I guess you would consider it a side quest. It's a very, explora- we'll say an exploration-based side quest that, um, you know, is probably my only real complaint with the DLC. Again, I'm not going to spoil what it is. You'll see it for yourself, but uh, it's certainly, it can be a little maddening. We'll say that. Again, trying to speak in broad terms, what Seth is referring to is there is a collection side quest. Yes. There are... In a very clear reference to Generation 1, there are 151 different items hidden over the Isle of Armor that you have to find. And it's it's a bit of a, in some cases, easy to find these things, and in some cases it's kind of a literal pixel hunt. Now I will say that it does make your life quite a bit easier because each different area of the island has its own total. I do like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So it won't just say, oh, there's three more left on the entire island. No, it'll say, hey, no, there's three more left in this little area here. There's seven left in this area. There's five left in this area. There's 19 left in this area. So I am very happy that the game breaks it up like that, because if they didn't, I probably would not have finished it. Yeah, it makes it, it definitely makes it a lot more palatable. Um, Another thing I just want to shout out real quickly just before we wrap up to uh, for completionists, uh, when you are tackling the Isle of Armor, it does have its own separate Pokedex um, where it will cover the all the sort of like new and returning Pokemon. Uh, there are a handful of version exclusives that you'll have to trade for. And there are some... There are some Pokemon that have to be evolved in particular ways in order to... <laughs> so just like a normal Pokedex. Just like a normal Pokedex, and just like, you know, completing the standard Galarian Pokedex, there are rewards for doing so. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that again, if you're, if you're a completionist, and, and if you're somebody who has spent a lot of time with this game already, there is a lot for you to sink your teeth into here. This is not going to be just like a one-and-done five-hour experience. I mean, this is something that, I mean, you and I, for our money, have already put a ton of time into, and I know we're both nowhere near done with our time with it. Oh, no. Uh, I have I have done quite a bit. Uh, I've done enough to say that I'm done with it, but I haven't completed it. Right, right. But I'm more than happy to jump back into it again soon but uh, i will add <laughs> one thing they do have another new mechanic they've added into the isle of armor which is kind of an item crafting item combination thing ah yes so if you have a bunch of excess items in your pack which i'm sure most of us probably do they have a way for you to use those there is an item that you get fairly early on in the story of the DLC 
that allows you to combine four items to try to make a new one. I will say the DLC does seem to go out of its way to encourage a lot of experimentation with this because there are items everywhere. <laughs> yeah. The shinies as far I, as the eye can see. You probably won't be able to go 10 steps without seeing the shine of an item on the ground. Yeah, you're yeah, you're probably right. There are items everywhere. <laughs> so, pick them up. Use them in that little item crock pot. Right. See what you can make. There's even a couple new items they've added for the Isle of Armor, but I'll let you guys find those out yourself. Oh, yeah. And there's a ton. I mean, there's a ton of little things. I mean, we could sit here for, you know, for forever and talk about the little tiny things. But I think that is what is so appealing about this DLC is, you know, we've we've talked about a lot of stuff here today. But yes, there is still so much more for you to see and discover and be surprised by. And that is my favorite thing about this expansion. Yeah, I was very happily, very pleasantly surprised several times going through. And even once you finish the main story, there's still some pleasant surprises left to find. And uh, again, just after playing through the entire adventure, after taking the Isle of Armor top to bottom, we can very confidently say that this is, at least it should be, the future that the Pokemon franchise goes in. So yeah, in celebration, actually, of the release of Isle of Armor, um, just as a quick kind of PSA, they do have an event kind of going on, a max raid battle event, where the, the I think it, the, the deal was you were um, going to be encount- encountering a max raid battle Zera Aura that had to be accumulatively defeated over one million times. And the reward for this was that players would be given the opportunity to obtain a shiny version of Zera Aura. Now, this goal has already been far surpassed. Oh, yes. I, I, as a matter of fact, I think <laughs> by the time they finally got around to, like, calling it done, it was already at, like, a million and a half defeats. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, essentially, that's already done. They have said that for further defeats, more rewards would be unlocked and given to players, but... The reason I wanted to shout this out is because there is a little bit of a trick to actually getting this in your game, and I wanted to make sure that our listeners knew all about that. So in order for this to work, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to have Pokemon Home on your Switch or on your smartphone device. And what you're going to have to do is deposit a Pokemon in Pokemon Home or move a Pokemon to Pokemon Sword or Pokemon Shield from Pokemon Home between Wednesday, June 17th and Monday, July 6th. Anywhere between that time frame, you have to basically transfer something either in or out of Pokemon Home, and you will be eligible for Shiny Zera Aura, uh, which is going to be uh, gifted to people via Mystery Gift, uh, I believe, on June 29th. So that's just a quick PSA there. Download Pokemon Home, um, put a Pokemon either in or out of there from it, just so they can kind of like, I, I think it's really just a verification thing, and uh, and you will be able to claim Shiny Zera Aura and any of the future rewards that are unlocked. So, do not miss out on that. I shan't. <laughs> 
but yeah, I think uh, you know, with with uh, all of this news insanity and uh, Nintendo discussion insanity. Yeah, we didn't have enough to talk about this week, did we? Yeah, no, it was just a light, breezy episode this week. Good lord. But uh, yeah, that's that's about all I've got, man. Well, once again, guys, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. We appreciate each and every one of our listeners for tuning in every week uh, and seeing what all the craziness we have going on. Yes, this this wild world of Nintendo is an adventure indeed each and every week here on All In. Again, be sure to follow us on Facebook at All In, All In Podcast on Twitter. Talk to us on there. We're always posting on social media. Always happy to hear from you guys, and we love the support. And again, we will make sure to post links to that indie game uh, dev conference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you next week. I have been Single Strike Seth. And I have been from the Wonderful 101, Wonder Eric. (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. We'll see you next time.